As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So, uh, I, don't, I don't really have an agenda for today. <laughs> Nor do I. I feel like there's been so much going on that it's just like this fire hose and it's like, Oh God. Well, I gave you, I gave you, um, a bunch of things. So you, you can do de- dealer's choice. <laughs> you did. Um, you know, it's, it's also interesting that today green room finally came down the pipe from Spotify. Um, I was over right. there briefly and, um, it, it seems like a shit show. What do you mean? Uh, a couple things. Like technically, it wasn't working. Like I couldn't actually uh, finish the sign-up process. It has you go through a series of mm. topics that you might be interested in, and it just got stuck. And then uh, once you sign up, uh, with let, your me, Spotify let me account. Hold on, let me finish. Let me stop you right there. Oh, okay. Like, okay. <laughs> why do you have to have? Uh, why if if it's just a we want to listen to rooms like that was. Uh, I did this today, but it's like, why do you have to tell them what you want to do? I know it's Spotify and they have, um, you know, yeah, it's all about the recommendations. It's about, yeah. you know, the problem that clubhouse has right now, mm. right? Where you go there and you're like, what is this stuff? And yeah, I mean, granted like clubhouse also asks what you're interested in, but I mean, they're trying to use those things as hints, you know? And I, I, I mean, also like, I think they just reskinned the locker room app right, because right. By default, you're following 13 people who are totally not interesting, at least to mm. me. Um, and mm. you're following the topics of NBA and NFL. So they mm. rushed this thing out. They just did a skin job and mm. put it out there in the App Store. Um, and and by the way, because it was it it was that like sort of sports thing before. Yep, exactly. Like, if, if did you turn it on? Like, could you hear? Because listen, I, again, I'm I'm trying to get on the. Uh, Brooklyn Nets bandwagon. So, could you hear anything about like what was one of the greatest games? Oh, you know, of the season last night or not? Uh, you know, I didn't look that hard. Uh, it's it's a bit <laughs> overwhelming. There's a lot of faces in each room, and you're kind of like looking at them and being like, I don't know any of these people. Like, well, why would I go into this room? But I guess if you're topically interested, you could do it. Hmm. I don't know. It was it was a weird experience. Like cuz people were also doing a comparison between Twitter Spaces and Clubhouse and it was like doing that meta thing as opposed to just mm. using the product. Mm-hmm. So uh well, that's the point is that if you're going to launch any one of these things, you have to um section off at least 30% of the rooms for talking about <laughs> the product itself. Yeah. Well, that's reasonable. <laughs> I guess it's, it's content and that's, that's what uh, Bo Burnham has a great line about how uh, the real world is where we go to make content to produce for the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And let me, uh, can, before, before you start, if yeah. you're going to, you were, you were I was a guy, dialing I was it up. Thing, like I've only watched about a third of it, but like oh. everyone loves that. Right. Yes. It's yeah. It's so transcendent. It's I was, 
baked out of my mind when I watched it. And it was even mm-hmm. more as a result, like, whoa, he's like inside my brain. Like, how did mm. he know that? And so that happened many, many times. And so if you watch it sober, maybe it won't be as profound, but even people who are, who are sober watching it. Well, you know what? The, the thing that I did that was, that was the wrong thing to do was my parents are here in town. So I tried to watch it with them. And I know that, if oh. Lisa and I watched it by oh. ourselves, yeah. it might bake our minds. But um, <laughs> I don't know what your relationship on. to your parents happens to be. But uh, you know, it's it's it was one of those things where it's like, uh, yeah, you have to have the right audience. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll watch the second two thirds because okay. it, it seemed great to me. But yeah, it's. It's solid. And and for those yeah. of you who are just tuning in, we were talking about Bo Barnum's Inside Special that's on Netflix. Hi- I highly recommend it. Okay. Shall we <laughs> formally? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Well, um, welcome, everybody. Today is Wednesday, June 16th. This is the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience, where Brian and I go into some of the tech news a little bit deeper, providing some context and insight from product perspective, historical perspective, just trying to make sense of what the hell is going on in the world. Um, And uh, as we were just talking, this has been a bit of a doozy um, in terms of just the news happening, both happening at like very high level, like the whole government is moving to try to, you know, at least, I don't know, if, if not break up big tech, scare them and have some good, you know, New York Times uh, headlines. And then other types of like smaller things that are happening where Automatic acquired my favorite journaling app um, day one. And we were just talking about Spotify putting out Greenroom, their social audio competitor, Facebook doing their first social audio um, experiment. So, I mean, there's that. And then there's the Windows leak. Uh, we get stuff all over the place. Um, but yeah. Are you asking me what to go with? <laughs> uh, a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how, uh, close are you to the day one folks? Uh, yeah. So, well, I'm curious about what your question is. I would say that I'm close in that I'm in their Slack. I have provided a lot of feedback over the years, some of which has actually been baked into the product and I've hunted them, um, since version 2.0 on product hunt. So in that sense, I've just kind of been a cheerleader and a user and excited about what they're doing. And now to me, this seems like automatic wants to, I don't know if not revitalize or rekindle or figure out what to do with Tumblr and what to do with, um, probably more Tumblr than anything actually. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Um, (laughs) so even automatic, which maybe you're closer to, uh, from way back in the day than I am, but, um, and Tumblr, like, I I love Tumblr as a person that was too old for it to have been as relevant as it is to certain people. Um, but in this world where, um, oh my God, um, Substack is uh, reinventing blogging and things like that. <laughs> like, what do you think about um, what do you think about this in terms of like? what is what is old is new again where it's it's people um finding new ways to make uh personal publishing um real and and relevant again yeah that's an interesting um i guess provocation um 
I mean, obviously people have been publishing, you know, on the internet for a very long time in various means and capacities, and there's different values that go into where you publish, what you publish on, how you publish it. You know, for example, Automatic's value prop through WordPress was that this is going to be an open source forever platform that allowed you to, you know, export your content if you needed to um, and take it with you. And um, nowadays, especially in the mobile era, that just seems like a lot less important, a lot less relevant. Um, I mean, I don't mean to say like less relevant, but I feel like given uh, the nature of, let's say, content on Snapchat that like is ephemeral and goes away, you know, the notion that you need to hold on to all your blog posts, you know, for eternity seems like that's a smaller and smaller subset of um, people on the Internet. And, and what that's interesting. About. That's interesting how you frame that, because yeah. uh, <laughs> to me, what <laughs> WordPress means is it is this sort of framework of if you own your own stuff. Yeah. If you own your own domain, if you own, like it, it, it is going back to so like an internet homesteader. Yeah. If, if, if you're a 2004 person and you're like, this is, um, this is what I, I'm, I'm planting my flag and, and, and this is who I am. Um, that, that's what WordPress means to me in the sense I know WordPress.com is, is, is closer to Tumblr and things like that. But like this idea that, that you, as opposed to giving your content to any sort of platform, it is going back to the time in the web where it's like, well, this is my stuff and I would take it with me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this brings up like an interesting sort of like uh, additional angle to this, right? Which is one, who wants to do that? Why do they want to do it? Um, what, what are the benefits that they're seeking or what are they trying to avoid, right? Like we're afraid of platform lock-in in some respects, but on the other hand, like people are hanging out on many platforms all the time. And so the idea that you're cut off from an audience, um, I mean, th- there, there is that, especially I suppose if you're you know, trafficking in content that might be offensive to, you know, the censors or whatever, um, that seems to be an interesting dynamic where people are wanting to have that, you know, third space that's not owned by anybody, but like even Trump tried to do that and he couldn't get an audience. So (laughs) there's like a kind of, uh, I don't want to say like perverse incentive, but the idea that you can sort of create your own internet outpost on your own, you know, WordPress or automatic site that you self host and you grow some audience on seems a little like tough to do these days. Okay. All right. That's, that's all right. That's super interesting. (laughs) Um, in a, you know, Dave Weiner. Uh, uh, I do. He doesn't like me. He of, blocked uh, me. Yes. Well, I think I don't think he's blocked me, but um, <laughs> he said he's something a, about RSS, and you know, he's a prickly pear. Don't 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 <laughs> take is. offense. I'm, I wasn't. If, if you get offended, if Dave Weiner uh, blocks you, <laughs> yeah. yeah, get a bit um, thicker skin. But the point is, is that in this era of uh, are you being shadow banned? Are you having? Uh, can you not have the reach that you could on these social platforms? In the Dave Weiner view view of the web, yep. it's still there, and it's What's not there? incumbent. The it, web, okay. You can still put up a. Uh, you can still put up a WordPress blog. Yep. You can still. All right. You can still buy a domain. You can. <laughs> You can still 
put up uh, a WordPress. Um, it's all open Did source. Did you know that future.com, sorry, I'm just like, you know, going to take this in a different direction momentarily, but future.com, which is the new Andrews and Horowitz publishing platform. And hopefully maybe we'll yeah. talk about it next yeah. week, but yeah, um, no, wait, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it now because this is the point is okay. that the web is still there. The open web is still there. So okay. if the idea is that platforms or journalists or whoever it is that is uh, not not giving you the the reach that you want, the mm-hmm. distribution that you want for your ideas, shadow banning you, literally banning you. The open web is still there. Now you just said yep. Donald Trump uh, w- went back to blocking <laughs> in two thousand three or two thousand four style, and it didn't work for, a for him apparently. Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah, right. But but it, it it is there, and there's no reason why people can't find you if they don't want to find you. So this idea that feels like you Don Quixote was shut- actually about blogging on the open web. You know, you're sort right, of like because- going off into the sunset to fight okay. windmills. I'm going to say, which is fine, and I'm I'm not going to name any. Um, uh, country or whatever, but okay. like, literally, if there was a country where shit was going down and there was a revolution happening, like, unless mm. they shut down the internet, you can still put a blog up, right? Okay, they can. Okay, yep. you can. They can shut down your Twitter. They can shut down this thing and that thing and the other thing. But the open web is still there. It's just that. It is like a fallback of last resort. I mean, you know, when nuclear winter comes, the -hmm. internet will still function in theory. The web is obviously built upon that. And so you can get a server, you can write some HTML, and Mm -hmm. it can connect Mm -hmm. to another Mm -hmm. thing using TCP, probably over an insecure, non-SSL connection, and we'll go back to the prehistoric era of the web. Is is, Is that the prehistoric era? (laughs) Um, no, the Wayback Machine actually has most of that. So it's not prehistory per se, but it's the early days where I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about what the norms and expectations of the current creator class and creator economy is and how much they want to get into like the technical weeds and how much owning your own kind of hosting platform makes a difference to your audience, right? Like it feels like, there's this interesting dynamic with like the browser being your user agent. And yet increasingly, whether you're doing Substack or I don't know, like podcasting, there is this kind of transformation of the content that you produce into a form that the you know end user is consuming. And that end user may, for example, take your medium post and pipe it into their Kindle. And so all of your great looking stuff goes away. Or you've created this amazing bespoke. I don't know, blog with your own theme and template. And then someone looks at it through an RSS reader. And so it doesn't make a difference. So it's like the content is the important thing and where you put that content. I mean, people are just kind of replicating the content on lots of different platforms. They'll post to LinkedIn, they'll post to Facebook, they'll post to Twitter. So uh, that's kind of what I'm saying is that again, in this hypothetical, not naming any country or something where a revolution happens. Yeah. And you needed to get the word out. Like you could still uh, create a, a, you could buy a domain and 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 create a blog or or a, whatever. Not even a blog, just literally a a, a a domain 
and you could do whatever, and then people could then but screen like, the capture problem that is and discovery. Put it, the problem is having right. people come to you, right? But like, I, idea, I hear what you're saying. If the idea is good enough, then they will uh, screen capture that and put that on Instagram, and they'll put it on Twitter, mm. and then it. You know what I'm saying is like it's not it's not that the open web is dead. It's just that these if if the but idea think about was, like how, like how much of an emergency you're talking about that's required to get someone to be motivated to take the steps that you just described, right? Like Andreessen Horowitz spent mm, somewhere mm, between mm, two and three million dollars mm. on a domain future.com, and they put up a custom WordPress instance with their own theme. Boom. And now they're like publishing and writing their own stuff. They don't want to support medium. That's fine. You know, they could have used a ghost. I don't know if they have a relationship with automatic, but you know, yeah, that was fine. They could do that. You know, uh, now the question is, and, and actually one thing that's interesting that I heard, uh, in an interview today on Peter Kafka's podcast, uh, was how they're going to be using the SEO juice from a16z.com. Um, right now, future.com redirects to future.a16z.com. Um, and they're going to be using a lot of that SEO juice to drive traffic to future.com. But like, if you don't have uh, a six or seven letter domain and you don't have a super old domain that's pointing traffic to it from an SEO perspective, it just feels like not a lot of people see a lot of value in setting up something that's going to be an outpost for any period of time. I guess to put this another way, there are a lot of people that will go buy a .xyz domain. They'll put up a website on WordPress. They'll run it for a month or two for some campaign or to see if people are interested in a product to like test the waters. And then if it doesn't work out, whatever, they, they trash it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a different way um, of looking at the disposability of these very composable features or, or products. Um, and I guess what I see is that automatic, although they, I don't know, WordPress is something like 70% of the websites on the internet. It's, uh, you know, I don't know how many of those are dubious and not that valuable and mostly spammy and bot content and written by GPT-3. But looking forward in terms of the changes in the way that people are composing and creating rich media content, uh, you know, what relevance does WordPress as a blogging platform have to someone who's grown up on TikTok? Right. Which is the same way of saying that, um, you only get your content through a, a feed or a platform. Um, uh, but also in terms of, uh, like authorship and creation, you know, like, like, I guess more of these media platforms and granted, there's a whole lot of content that's produced. And I don't mean that everyone's going to be producing, you know, music videos and dance videos and, you know, collabs and um, duets in the future, but it does feel like multimedia is a norm. Like people have an expectation that they want to build something or make something that's flashy, that's creative, that's got fonts, that's sampling music. And it's a different world than when we were just, you know, creating blog posts that were text only and we didn't really care about flashiness or standing out in an infinite feed of highly personalized content. Um, I, I, I want to tread lightly because I don't know how much I can talk about this, but mm -hmm. um, what, what's your take on the um, A16Z um, mm. doing their own media platform? Yeah. Well, I think the, as I understand it and, and I'll, I guess there's, I have a little bit of either ignorance or just kind of more to learn. There's a concern that seems to be that, you know, folks who have a lot of money and a lot of power and don't like to talk through the media, which I think is, is it the fourth wall or fourth rail, whatever it is. Um, 
that. I, I'm, I'm not sure what metaphor you're using. <laughs> there is a fourth rail and a fourth wall. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's the fourth. It's and it's not July fourth. It's um, you know, whatever the media, the news media is, the fourth estate. There we go. I knew it was the there. You something. go. That's a third metaphor. Okay. <laughs> you know, but this is the problem with my brain. It's it's sort of like a Rome database where everything's connected. But uh, I got drunk one night and linked everything. And okay. Anyways, what I was thinking about the fourth estate is that the fourth estate was supposed to exist as a filter for the common woman or man um, to make sense of what's going on in the world to act as sort of like a translation, a translation layer. And as, as you know, you pointed out the open web allows anybody to go out and have their own outpost and publish whatever they want. And it could be, you know, uh, who is, who had the 13 theses that nailed them to the wall? It was an M guy. Um, uh, right. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Come on. It was the McLuhan of his era. Martin Luther, Anyways, Martin Luther, Martin, Martin Luther, Luther. Thank you. Okay. Martin Luther McLuhan um, posted his 13 theses, you know, out and started a whole revolution. Well, in a, in a way, like what Andreessen Horowitz seems to want to do is a couple things, at least according, again, to the interview that I heard today uh, that Peter Kafka did on his Recode Media podcast. Which was great. Yes. Yeah, which was which is awesome. Um, and it was very spicy, actually, if anyone wants to hear a very interesting, tense kind of interaction between maybe conventional media, although I think Peter's actually quite balanced. Um, and oh God. and he's also he's also willing to he's also willing to do the sort of um, I'll, I'll be a little spicy yeah. and, and Margaret, Margaret knew that Margaret, going, yeah. she, she picked him, she picked him to do it. So she knew what she was doing, but go oh, yeah, totally. Um, sorry. So what I was saying is, and what I appreciate about what she was saying, and I think that there is some validity to this is that the news media in general has to really dumb things down. And if Andreessen wants to be out there, soliciting or finding the best talent or the most interesting folks um, who are working on, you know, increasingly sophisticated things that are actually quite inaccessible to a broad audience, then they need to have pieces that are written specifically to uh, appeal to those sorts, you know? So if you think about like archive, arxiv.org as a place to go where you find out the latest and greatest in machine learning and all sorts of other scientific and academic papers, you want something almost in between the New York Times and that. And I feel like that's where they see their content marketing is going to go. So, you know, is that a big F you to the news media? Because the news media is serving a different audience. I, I, I have a hard time fully seeing that. Can I can I tell you what I think? And again, of course, I, I'm I'm gonna. That's why we're here. I'm gonna I'm gonna tread very carefully here. <laughs> you know that a sixteen z half of what they do right now is in crypto. Yes. And what I think is happening is that that is such a there is an entire um, media infrastructure that is covering crypto, and it is so far from the normal um, uh, media infrastructure, from the New York Times, from the Wall Street Journal. Especially, okay, forget New York Times because, you know, maybe that's a political thing. Wall Street Journal. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal has no idea how to cover crypto, yeah. right? And so one of the things, it's not mm. just that it's crypto that is half of what A16Z is doing these days, but there's no way that they can... If 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 they're if they're going in and and investing in a in a company or whatever, there's no way that they can even get that company out into the world 
in a way that they would want to get it in front of a Wall Street Journal hmm. reading public, right? Because the Wall Street Journal doesn't know how to handle it. And that is half of what they're doing. Is that different from what I just said? No. <laughs> it's, 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 it's that... Um, it's that because when when Margaret says that they want to be more uh, we're 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 um, progressive, we're making the world better, and things like that, that's not in a nuts and bolts way what their actual problem is. It's not that oh, because we have this new company that wants to do a new whatever whatever SaaS or whatever, the, 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 we're not getting the the right sort of coverage in it. It's the fact that there's. The, the the existing media cannot mm. has no has no context for what this I see. Okay. investment would be. Let me, yeah. yeah, let me combine what we're both saying because they're they they build on each other and I think actually they clarify. So on the one hand, I'm saying that you know the New York Times is catering to one audience and that audience is not in the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of crypto. Um, but we are also saying, which I think is, is critical and important, is that even like the staff or the editors or the people who figure out the narratives to you know put out there in the world, they are not equipped and they are not deep enough in this. And in fact, their worldview is so kind of baked on the pre-future <laughs> version of things that it kind of is against their own self-interest to tell those stories in a way that maybe resonates with a crowd that is, let's say, already assumed that Web3 is going to happen and is, in fact, well underway. Yes. But, okay, so let me put this in another way. Yeah. Um, uh, certain people that I know in journalism circles are like, well, of course, uh, Mark Andreessen blocked me on Twitter two years ago, and this is he hates journalists and things like that. Right. That... That is not entirely what's going on here. Do I believe that um, certain people in A16Z and VC land are fed up with um, the existing uh, journalism infrastructure? Yes, I do think they are, but that is not what is in the main of what this is. This is more like they're, they're fed up with the fact that they cannot, they don't have the rails to put the story out of the of what these investments are, right? Because if you think about it, one of the things that um, people are frustrated with is that it is a lot of the mainstream journalism about tech is about tech that is consumer tech. Yeah, is about the tech that 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 touches my parents' lives, you know, um, and, and that makes sense. And But there's this huge other side of tech, which is SaaS and cloud and, and crypto and things like that. And, and I think that that is more what A16Z is doing right now than, than the frustration with just like... So is the, it a the, matter of completeness or saturation or like, you know what I mean? Mm. I think that it is the 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 frameworks aren't there. Okay, like the storytelling frameworks. Yeah, but but okay, but to go back to my point about complexity, sophistication, like the level of detail uh, that I think, at least from what I was hearing today in the interview, that Anderson Horowitz wants in these stories that ultimately has to shake out because of, again, the broad, broad base of the readership of the New York Times and the Washington Post and whatever. 
are you imagining that with the right frameworks, uh, those types of papers or outlets could actually get to the level of detail that's desired by A16Z? It's it's possible. And by the way, hmm. listen, I'm I'm not I'm not saying that people like the block and um, uh, what's the other big crypto um, publication that I quote from all the time? And Coindesk. Uh, yeah, or or whomever. Yes, mm-hmm. P- please believe me. Uh, or, or you know, Brady Dale works know. for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, of course there is there is an infrastructure out there for um, these things, but I'm just not sure that it's it's only political and 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 it is sort of telling the way that some. Journalists uh, framed it as, as like, well, of course, this is just going to be the PR for um, uh, a, a a VC company that wants to just have only you know sunshine and rainbows and and right. you know unicorn for for their portfolio companies, and, and and so this is just going to be a um, a blogging platform that will be just the pure PR bullshit. It could turn out to be that, but I don't think, given their ambition and the people involved in it, that that's what it is. So, I I thought about that too. You know, like what's in it for Andreessen Horowitz to basically have like a bunch of like puff pieces? You know, that's like conventional PR. I think like a much stronger play. And I think, well, I have no idea about their strategy, and I don't know what they're planning to do. But you know, given what Andreessen has done with all of their content historically, it feels like it's trying to put a signal out there that is a clear, crisper, you know, way of telling stories on behalf of startups that, again, might be a little bit challenging um, to get out there with fidelity. Because, like Peter Kafka also said, you know, a good news story is going to have tension. It's going to have conflict. It's going to have like something battling against something else. It's going to be Facebook against Apple or something, where well, and, that and then, conflict that- may be completely irrelevant to understanding what the startup is actually working on. And so, from a founder's perspective, that level of noise and distortion actually is working against me one like recruiting people to getting like my vision out there in a clear way so those are all ways in which the media is distorting these stories in a way that hasn't really been i think you know resolved well i would push back on that okay but 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 the 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 idea i mean that's that's the danger is that what you just said is that it, it could just be a, an echo chamber where it's just like totally um Right. It's, it's just like, Hey, well, and that's the fourth um, estate role, right? So, you know, the fourth right. estate can come in and take any of these pieces from future and then choose to write about them and push back and say, this is BS or this doesn't work, or this is another Theranos or whatever that is necessary to be said. I, it's almost like undermining the sense that the media feels like it, it doesn't have power. And yet now, it does. Here's, here's the galaxy brain part of it okay. is that in this current environment i don't think it matters i don't think it matters because we're still assuming that there is um a larger media that is the mainstream media Mm. it doesn't exist it does not exist so if you create your own media and i think that this is 
completely what they see mm-hmm. that it's like this is what we do chris we're we're talking to people that care about startups that care about technology and things like that well uh, so we're creating this media that cares about these things that is beyond the new york times that's beyond the wall street journal that's beyond the mm. um that that want to dissect these things and so um you can create this pod of people um and and what A16Z wants is these are the people that could be a 14-year-old that is like going to listen for the next six or eight years and then create a company, you know? Like, so it's the the gene the the galaxy brain part of it is is that it doesn't matter anymore. Like create your own um worldwide wrestling federation, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, oh well, but but that's not real. No, it is real inside of the universe of the media that you create. And and I'm not saying, by the way, <laughs> what AC, A16Z is creating is fake. But what I'm saying is you create the own bound, your own boundaries of what is the um, culture and the reality of what the, the audience that you want hmm. to be listening to you um, but I think this is exactly it, right? So I think we're sort of saying two things. And I think this is actually important because it does actually tie back to where we started when we were talking about automatic, the open web, like publishing out there. It does fit into the creator economy and streaming wars battle that we've been talking about for a while. Um, and the broader, you know, dub, dub, dub war that, that we're also looking at. Like all these things are related. And what I hear you say is that uh, future.com is one of the greatest, latest examples of someone saying, you know, but the existing institutions that have served a function have not been sufficiently uh, disrupted by the internet. And therefore we're going to go out and do our own thing. And therefore we're going to build our own audience because, you know, we can, not only do we have the money, but we have the startups, we have the talent, we have the people and we're producing tons of content already. So why don't we just aggregate that into our own, Worldwide Wrestling Federation called Future.com. Right. This is, and I'll say it's one more thing. It's a Marvel universe basically being created. Uh, yes, or uh, yes, uh, a cinematic universe. Of yes, there we go. Making right. I like there that. you go. Yep. Perfect. Um, the only thing that I would say, and again, <laughs> I love everyone involved. Um, <laughs> just because you have the domain and you announce that you're doing this, you were already doing this. I'm not sure what additional. Um, audience or distribution they're well, going to get Well, one for thing it, that, that is a little bit different, I think, is and actually, functionally, this is no different than what Medium had with their publications before. It is different in that you know, A16Z owns and runs the whole thing, and they're going to be staffing it, they're going to be paying people to work on it, and there is a submission process. So, it may also be that they're looking for those original voices or people that have been shunned by the mainstream media or don't have an audience, and from a deal flow perspective, that's a great way of supporting, you know, new entrepreneurs or people that um, are finding it harder to get their story out there through conventional means. Well, and that comes back to my uh, thing this week about it's all about uh, deal flow. (laughs) But What was your thing earlier this week? That's inside baseball. Oh, okay. I see. You know, the the fact that um, why why are why are uh, VCs so willing to give you an 86 uh, the, the Twitter thread thing because mm. to tell you how to right. succeed, it's because they want you 
to think they're cool because they want you to come to them with your deal. They want to be cool. It, 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 the thing that it's I like said, else, early, right. It's, I yeah. mean, it's a flashlight or it's a, I don't know, all these moths like need to be attracted to something. And so the more you sort of, you know, burn and put stuff out there on a, on a regular basis, the more likely it is that people are going to see you, they're going to remember you. And eventually they're going to want to connect with you. Well, if anyone heard my, um, my rant about this, the, the one thing I want anyone when was to this? take away from it. Uh-huh. When was your rant? Oh, it was Tuesday or, okay. or, or oh, Monday. I, no, yeah, Monday. I do remember this. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it was, I was talking about Miami. Okay. Yep. Was it this week or I think it was, <laughs> wait, today's Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday. Uh, it might've been on Monday actually. So the point, all I want anyone to take away from it is people oh, forget I do this. this. Yep. Mm-hmm. The VCs need entrepreneurs more than entrepreneurs need VCs. Yes. And no one, the way that Twitter works, the way that social media works, the way that all of this sort of thing works is that it's, it is the, these are these, this priesthood on high that maybe will deign to give you an investment in your company. Do you know what it's like to be a VC? You, Most you're people just, don't. You're pissing in the wind. <laughs> you don't get the good deals just because you put out your shingle. Like the point is, is that the reason VCs are so obnoxious is because they need to be cool. They need you to know about them. They need you to want them on your cap table. And so if you don't take anything away from the rant that I did, I guess it was Monday. Remember that. Remember that VCs need you more than you need them. To, to make this clear, because I think this is a very important point, and you know, maybe our audience is aware of this point already, but nonetheless, for those who aren't, like venture capital is a form of Las Vegas craps. You know, and to your point, those who elbow in and put their bets down on the table are the ones who get to play. And so if you're a VC who waits back or doesn't, you know, place a bet on the table or doesn't place many bets on many tables, you're ultimately going to have fewer, um, what is it? Uh, hits on, no, it's shots on goal. Right. And so right. to your point, they need to actually have access to a lot of different deals in order for the economics to work out. Well, it's not only that. Okay, look, Chris and I, Chris, Chris yep. Messina and I That's are me, opening yep. up a VC firm <laughs> uh-huh. uh, right now. Hey, guys, uh, who wants our money? Come give us your deals. Well, no one's going to necessarily give us our deals, but Chris and I know a lot of people, so maybe they will say, "All right, uh, yeah, uh, pony up, uh, give us an angel or this thing or that thing." No, it is literally a tree falling in the woods. Right. Mm -hmm. So the reason that VCs are in these days famous people, content creators, content uh, or NBA NBA stars, sure, is because it is a virtue signaling thing. Is like, look at who I have when I raise my angel round. Look at who I have when I raise my A round and B round and C round, and so. And by the way, if you want to get A16Z in your A round or B round, you have to have this other virtue signaling thing. And so all of the stuff about VCs you know, pontificating and being these philosophers about how business works and things like that, 
I, it bothers me so much that no, maybe, maybe people get it. Maybe I'm not, by the way, maybe people are smarter than I think they are, but it's, they're not doing this out of their geniuses. They're doing this because it's marketing. They're marketing. Chris and I, with our VC fund, <laughs> aside from the people that we know, if there's a, if the next Uber or, or Airbnb or whatever, like, unless they know about us, they're not going to come to us and be like, Hey, please invest. We have to find them. So we have to have it, uh, the Chris and Brian, um, uh, fund has to be out there and, and we have to attract those people to, to want to be like, Hey, uh, do you want to pony up $50,000? Well, I mean, it's like you said, it's marketing and it's a matter of increasing the size of the funnel and how much, how little effort you can put in to have the maximum amount of exposure, right? So it's a highly leveraged act to be producing smart sounding pithy, you know, statements on Twitter that get a lot of retweets and get a lot of engagement. And like we said, you have to do it on a regular basis. You have to crank it out because that's what the creator economy demands because now there is so much content. And this goes back to, I don't know, this is a funny way to I don't know, juxtapose these points and why this future thing is so curious is because when we talked about in the beginning going off and sort of, you know, planting a flag out in the middle of the open web, the problem is distribution. So invariably, A16Z needs to have a store of content that they can, you know, churn out and propagate it into lots of different places. So it is a type of propaganda, but that's what the role of propaganda is. Well, and to put the history hat on, and I yes. mentioned this on Monday, like this did not exist What's through the nineties. Ah. The, the, no one, no one knew. I mean, people knew who you know, Kleiner Perkins were, and like people knew that Sand Hill Road existed, but there was no uh, marketing and promotion of this stuff because it was sort of like that. Um, well, I think what you said was there was like three main VCs and they were like mm-hmm. the Kingmakers and everyone knew that you went to Sun right. Hill road and you right, talked right. to them and they got the deals. And then what I also said was, listen, the people that blew this up were Fred Wilson yeah. and uh, Paul Graham and Mark Andreessen. People forget this be- before he left Twitter. He had a blog in, in the mid two uh, thousands. Uh, yep. yep. Um, and so this idea that, well, if I'm going to be a, uh, an angel investor or a VC, I have to be this philosopher king. That yeah, but that's not entirely all- fair because back then it was also about being like a Pied Piper, not in the uh, It's Silicon also not Valley entirely sense, fair but- because those three people are geniuses in terms of like <laughs> having ideas about what makes True. businesses work. So this is, this, this is kind of, maybe, maybe I should have done a, a, a deeper rant about this, but th- this idea that all VCs and all investors and have to be these philosopher kings, they're 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 emperors with no clothes because they're all aping the people that did it well because they are the best. Okay, I, I, let me mm, let's take a step back, and I guess for me, it's a little bit not so much being you know generous because VCs are fine; they're doing fine, but. From the perspective of, you know, talking about a reality, putting a reality out there, and then creating that reality, it feels like there's lots of different media that you can produce. You know, some people used to do it with books, and then, you know, the internet came along, and you could do it through blogs, and now it's being done through podcasts, it's being done. I mean, like, I think, um, oh God, why can't I think of his name? 
um, I always see his face around. He's the guy from the Midwest that basically has like a TikTok and he's like a VC and he just like raised a bunch of money. Not Harry Stevens. Stevens. He doesn't uh, have a TikTok. The other guy. The, oh. the Midwest uh, uh, threw me for a loop. I don't know. Oh, oh. well, uh, it'll come to my mind eventually. Regardless, there will be a set of VCs who are really good at the next medium whether it's TikTok or whether it's social audio and that's going to be their jam. And so whether it's, you know, genius takes or hosting really great conversation. I mean, the fact that Andreessen also invested in clubhouse and then hosted these quite exclusive kind of social audio dinners on the regular was another way for them to lead the future and to demonstrate what kind of firm they are, that they're like hands-on and they're promotive and like they're founders and they're way more visible than a lot of other VCs that are out there. Well, let me uh, let's take it in another direction because okay. we've 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 hinted about this a little bit. Like what we do have now is there is uh, you know the 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 new um, people creating angel funds and um, syndicates mm, yep. are are the the influencers and the creators because again what matters is signaling. And this is not. I'm. I'm not saying this in any pejorative way, but like signaling that it sounds a little negative. And maybe, maybe the whole like emperors with no clothes thing. I don't know that you're distinguishing between those who are providing value and insight and those who are performing. You know. But but the point is, is that when when someone raises a round and I talk about it on the show, yeah, and it's like this is their A16Zs there. you know, uh, uh, Tiger Global is there. Like th- those are sort of that's the the gold standard of like. Well, everybody's involved in this. Uh, Masasan wants to beat, mm-hmm. but also at the same time, if you can get, um, you know, um, NBA people, if you can get uh, YouTube people on there, like that's meaningful because those people do have money, and that's kind of it. It, it means that um, you're just not a nobody. Do you know what I mean? And and I'm not saying again not pejoratively, but it's like it is so if if what we're talking about is people that have connections and people that have a, a, a finger on the pulse of what is now and a current mm-hmm. then then that's what is happening right now is those are the people that that are are making these investments and making these companies happen. Is that a problem? Not for me. <laughs> um, I want to do a quick reset. Um, we, we've been going for a little while now. What we're trying to do is, I guess, put one, you know, what's going on with Andreessen Horowitz, the media environment, whether the open web is still relevant, um, Automatic's purchase of day one, this app, which publishes to Tumblr. I was originally going to go down the path of saying, well, what? I can't even imagine how people publish how like a younger generation, like Gen Z publishes to Tumblr anymore. Like it, you know what I mean? And that's where I thought day one might come in, but we'll set that aside for now. Um, and yeah, I, I guess just like trying to read the tea leaves on what this means and whether this is, you know, VC ownership of the fourth estate, or if this is just a new form of PR and that's fine. What do you think, Chris, mm. I'm interrupting. Mm. What do you think of the idea of there are, and I'm not going to name any names, there are a ton of people right now that are just influencers 
that are um, investment influencers. They are the people that are like, and 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 this is more in the crypto world, but it's not just in the crypto world either. Again, I'm not going to name names, but I can think of a bunch of people that are like, I have this huge following on social media, and I have um, a syndicate on AngelList, and um, follow me and my investments, and like that is that is like a, a certain high level of social media influencer right now. Uh, it builds on your point. You know, which is visibility, audience, you know, and then capital, right? One, it's it is like being like a lightning rod where you are attracting all of this energy, all this enthusiasm. There's a story or a perspective that you're putting out there, and then people are responding to that, they're relating to it, and they wanna get involved, they wanna talk to you. And then And you get deal flow. Exactly. And you get deal flow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that all makes sense. It's obviously the degree to which it's a transparent interaction is important. Um, there are a lot of scouts out there who are not, who are scouting for like VC firms who are not super transparent about what they're doing. And that's not so great. Um, but in general, I feel like this is just like the way that the internet is reconfiguring business and access. Like you literally can sort of pop up a new Twitter account and start saying interesting things, um, and build relationships that way. And, you know, I think it's working by the way, I brought up a meal. Oh, He's now back to request it. Let me add him again. Um, if he wants to jump in and add something else here. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. He uh, went away. Oh, there yeah. he is. Yep. Yeah, so um, I'm, I just want to push back a little bit, but really... I, I guess make the case here. So I get the idea of, you know, you're a new VC or you're a VC that's moving to Austin and you need to build deal flow. Um, but I don't see the connection with A to 16 Z and future. So I guess make the case to me, um, or I would, I would say, let me, let me put it this way. Um, who are you pushing back on? Don't, 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 doesn't your average entrepreneur or an entrepreneur that A to 16, like, doesn't everyone know of A to 16Z? Like, do they really need future to build mm. deal flow? I don't follow. I mean, maybe it's an assumption that I'm making that everyone knows A to 16Z, but I feel like those two things are disjointed, right? Like it's, mm. I feel like the average entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, even in a different city, that's A to 16Z doesn't play in, doesn't need future to, to build deal flow. I feel like they, they deal flow is not their problem. I, I kind of get the idea that they want to build you know, news stories in a specific way and they want to get their story out there for their clients. That makes more sense to me than, you know, building deal. I think flow. it's a matter I of like it for effort. A, new, a new VC, but not so much them. Like effort and consistency. 
You know, like rather than having to chase down, you know, reporters or, you know, PR folks or going through a PR agency and having to explain or get the story right through third party sources, they want to become their own, you know, mouthpiece in that way and to amplify what they're doing. It's not only that, like, okay, if, if you, depending on your politics, like if you consider the gold standard to be the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever for what? For this is the news. Okay. This is where information flows from. Um, yes, A16Z is right up there with anybody um, right now in terms of like, oh, who would you want to have be in the headline if if you're raising a Series A and it's on TechCrunch, right? Hmm. But the point is, is that um, you can still add a Tiffany. Uh, the boy, that's a that's an even older one. Uh, which, which Tiffany are we talking about? Yeah, right, right. Uh, or Tiffany or the Cadillac? Like, how many okay. old old man <laughs> things can I do? But like the the, the idea being that um, if if they're they're going up against Tiger, they're going up against Masasan, they're going up against um, you know any of the the people that were even traditionally competitive, they want to be the Gold standard for well, of course, uh, A16Z led the round or, or is involved or whatever, and so I can see how if I can see how you can there's a a brand halo that they don't yet have that that is probably three x what they already have. I can see they might not get there, mm-hmm. but I can see that 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 is what they're. I mean, do you think uh, that this website happen. like is sufficient? I mean, I feel like to do what you're describing requires. Well, this is this is where I was like, okay, is it is it just a PR thing, and you're just going to have our our, our our press releases, and we already have the podcast and things like that? But no, if they succeed at it, I can see that they're going to think. All right, let me let me give an example that maybe would mean something to people listening, and and Chris mm-hmm. uh, or a uh, Wired. When Wired was what Wired was in the '90s, hmm. the coolest, you know, brand right. of the future. That is, and by the way, Sonal was <laughs> was that Wired the uh, uh, right was yeah. the editor. Uh, yeah, so that is what I think that that is what they see. They see the idea of being the. Not just the New York Times. If, if 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 people are stumbling up upon that as my analogy, what I'm trying to I'm trying to get this brand halo idea that is beyond just oh well they're one of the best VC firms in the country or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's also these are the people when 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 Margaret says that they're talking about the future that they want the future to happen. They're using words that are trying to be what Wired was for those of us coming up in the 90s. Hmm. I, I hear what you're saying. I wonder if that's like it's kind of not young enough. You know, that's why I'm, I'm bringing up like the contrast with like a TikTok mm. or other mm. platforms that are a little more, mm. you know, high, <laughs> I don't know, high engagement. Mm. We'll see. I, I didn't say they'll succeed. I didn't say they'll succeed. I, I, I just think that that's what they're doing. That is a really good question. Like, who is this for? And my assumption is that it's for 
I guess if I think about my peers that were going through Y Combinator and how rabid, you know, the the following is inside of Bookface, which is the sort of you know private internal message board for Y Combinator. There's a desire, I think, to speak very specifically to an audience that will read future.com content and be like, Oh man, I would love to publish my stuff here and it's going to legitimize it and, you know, bring it to a much broader audience. And then it becomes this virtuous cycle, I presume. Which, which by the way, uh-huh. YC has done with um, hacker news and things like yeah, that. Right. Like, right. It's not like they've built it out in a meaningful way, but you know, it I mean, does it exist. It's plenty yeah. of, you know, traffic and attention. Yeah. Yeah. They can, I mean, they can certainly go there, right? Even they have a podcast, they're launching a website. Actually, they have like four or five podcasts. Right. Yes. So they they can, you know, there's nothing stopping them from, from, it's not one or the other. They can certainly do a TikTok. Okay. Look, the, 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 the worst way, the most cynical way to look at this is that, um, the the powerful people at A16Z are pissed because all of their great op-eds and essays weren't being published in the venues that they wanted them being published in. Or if they were being published, they weren't getting the reception that they thought they deserved. That's the most cynical way to do it, to, to look at this. The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the most optimistic way to look at this is, I think, building a a media brand for for this decade that was like sort of what it was like when you know like the age of spiritual machines came out mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and it was like this is when i see when i listen to margaret and sonal talk about this like that's what i keep hearing they're they're reaching back to that idea of like remember when everything was ha- now Again, PR, 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 PR. Margaret is one of the smartest people ever in the history of PR. I get all of that, but I also feel what they're reaching for, and they might not get there, but I I, I don't know. I, I kind of am rooting for them to get there a little bit. <laughs> I have no problem with it, personally. I think the whole media like narrative in question is a little bit overblown, given how straightforward this content seems so far. Um, and like like we said, it's like you know, putting up something out of the middle of the open web. Like, who cares? Um, do you want to do one more thing? Uh, we've been going for an hour. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, let's let's do something else. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. By the way, if anybody wants to raise their hand, come up. Um, you know, Emil, you've joined us. I don't know if if we missed something um, that you want to talk about before, but um, happy to have you here. Um, there was uh, Brian. You had sort of sent me the thing about Windows. And I think about yeah. Windows null dot null point null times a day, and <laughs> thankfully, and this is the most I've thought about it in years. And I looked at the screenshots, and I was like, "What is it like? 2012? Like, don't give me is- a tr- don't give me in trouble. <clears throat> Did you hear that? That uh, I I got in trouble for? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, com- yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. The whole we, Dell we talked thing. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so Windows 11 is coming. <laughs> I love this. Like they turned it up to eleven. It's like, really, guys? Because OS X is now at eleven, and um, it's not even OS X anymore. It's just Mac OS. Uh, uh, the Edbot said, "Is is it the Spinal Tap moment? It's right. Windows 11. All right, wait. Can wait, you wait, imagine wait. that reference? When did that movie come out? Like 1977? nineteen seventy seven? Nineteen eighty six. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I was five. Uh, so 
I mean, I'm a, I'm a PC guy. I'm excited. <laughs> I don't know okay. what to tell you guys. Go. Bring <laughs> no, us into your world. No, no. It, what is, no what, I just, I, I like, I like the fact that Windows 10 is updated twice a year and it's not like a every three year thing. I like where they're going with it. I like, where that. are they going with it? Like, what is your sense? Um, I honestly, I just like that. They're, they're still trying to, maintaining it. <laughs> Yeah, they're you know it's not not Boy, a Chris. It's I'm a sorry. By the way, like, send your send your nasty emails to Chris. <laughs> oh no. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I I very much appreciate that. Well, we'll see, we'll see. I mean, I think screenshots don't do operating systems justice. That's fair. Just, just it's an old operating system. You can't even you know it's not just an app, and even an app, I feel like a screenshot doesn't do it justice. I, I feel like it will be underwhelming um, just by nature of how it's being released um, and how it's already leaked out. But I yeah. think, you know, three day, three years from now or even two more updates in, uh, we'll get a real sense of what, what it what it is and what they're trying to do with it. So um, if, it, you, if you are a PC guy and, and, and you're paying attention to this more than Chris and I clearly <laughs> are, um, uh, my understanding is that they were they were getting aggressive and doing this windows X sort of thing. Oh, yeah, and right. it was going to be multi-screen. And, yeah. and so am, am I wrong in understanding that this is sort of like, Oh, dialing it back, dialing it back, uh, uh tamper down your expectations. We were, we were going to do all of these great things. And, and what, then, what happened uh, there? No. Like, why do they, yeah. do they so, get full feet or just what? Well, my understanding was, I mean, who knows how much of this is spin and how much of this is what yeah. actually happened. But Windows 10 X was originally supposed to be for dual screen devices. Right. Um, and dual then, screen meaning like the flip phones or whatever they were doing for a while. Well, right? so, so no, so so the there's a Surface Duo, but that's running Android. Um, but they also <laughs> at the same time announced Surface Neo, which they ended up canning, and that was like a basically you know like the Lenovo foldable laptop tablet thing uh, where the screen actually bends. Um, so basically, just think foldable phones like foldable screens, but for computers. Are people using and those? Well, I mean, this was supposed to be a part of that, right? Windows yeah. 10X was supposed to be designed for those screens. Yeah. And then they kind of shifted that and said, you know what? We'll bring this to normal devices first. We're not going to bring it to foldable screen laptops, if you will, even though obviously laptops fold. Yeah. Um, and, and they decided to do that presumably because the tech wasn't quite there yet. And then the pandemic hit. Mm. all at the same time. And the PC had a renaissance and people were just very happy buying, you know, like laptops PCs. and PCs, yeah. just normal computers. Um, and so, you know, they may have used that as an excuse to just kind of pair back and can windows 10 X. Um, or they may have, may have realized that, Hey, we need to just freshen up windows as it is mm. not split the, you know, the two and two, um, and so this is supposed to be kind of a mix of everything, right? They're supposed to not get rid of all the work they did on Windows 10X, but bring some of that into this. Um, they're supposed to just... I, I'm really curious how they're going to push Windows 10 users to Windows 11. I think that'll be interesting. And then at the same time, they were working on a redesign of Windows 10 that they just, I'm guessing, are rebranding. Um, like, I guess what I don't understand, and maybe you can help me, is what are they actually working on? Like, What is guiding the direction of that platform? I, so I th again, I think it was the form factor. I think it was like so just well, two screens. Yeah, I, well, I think that was the initial one, right? And then they were also, like I said, in tandem trying to just re you know re up give Windows 10 and a facelift, and they kind of just merged all of it together. Um, and you know, if the form factor is there in a few years, once we've kind of gone back to normal, I mean, I, I would I would love to have uh, you know a foldable 
laptop screen, which basically a, a massive screen that is um, my desktop that then I can just take with me if I need mm-hmm. to. Um, I don't, I don't believe we're going to be, you know, using these laptops forever. It's mm-hmm. got to shift. I, I think it's on the, on the flip side. I do, I do think that people who say that, you know, the laptop is dead, the tablet is the future <laughs> that the people have been saying that for years. Right. Um, but I do think a form factor is going to drive this is just the tech has to get there. And Microsoft just wants to make sure that they have a user interface that can play ball with that form factor. Mm. I, I feel I'm like, well, I was just going to say, would uh, Emma, what you Hi, this about is Remy, by the way. Oh, yeah. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I always forget to say hi when I come <laughs> up. Uh, I was just going to jump in. Um, hi, everybody. Remy, love mm. Twitter Spaces. Also, Chris, love your contributions to the timeline. Really oh, do. Just want to say that. Thank you. Um, Emma, I think it's interesting that you bring up like that, the bigger screens and like the folding screens, because I feel like that also feeds into Apple's universal control thing. Mm. Oh yeah. Right. Actually, that's a really good point. Yep. But, yeah. But I mean, the all, this, though, all this could also really... be. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. All of this could just, you know, become irrelevant if, if augmented reality glasses take over and that, you know, everything is a screen anywhere you look. I mean, if HoloLens <laughs> actually became, you know, a consumer product, sure. Um, but, I but... mean, they're work. They claim to be working on it. They just have really high requirements, so they want to. I think. I think the whole lens two weighs 500 grams. They're saying wow. the consumer version has to weigh 90. Yeah. That's their, that's their goal. So they have to significantly shrink totally it. Totally different thing. Yeah. It's like not wearing so like that, a bike helmet. It, it's interesting that they're saying they're definitely working on a consumer version, but they're just not willing to release anything until, until it's, you know, significantly lighter. And I think they also want to go from eight watt draw to two watt draw or something like that. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, and they certainly have the money, right? The HoloLens, <laughs> thanks to that uh, our U.S. Army contract, mm-hmm. true, it just kind of jumped over everyone um, yeah. in terms of AR and VR. Like, it's the only, it's the only, um, you know, people forget that Microsoft is the only company that is actually making bank off AR and VR. Like, blows Oculus out of the water, and Apple. Well, know, but that's because they're focused on the enterprise just, use cases and not the consumer stuff. Because the consumer stuff is just too hard; it's too heavy. It's, I mean, Oculus, I think, is getting there, but you're right. Like, nothing at the scale of like of military contracts. Well, but, by the but, way, but no I, one's I, doing enterprise AR or VR that, at that scale either, right? No one's doing right. that at that scale. But also, um, I, a couple of people have said this recently, like. <laughs> Quietly, while all of this antitrust stuff is happening, um, Facebook is quietly about to walk away with the consumer side of VR. <laughs> so that's uh, just putting that. Uh, that's at the top of tech meme right now, right? <laughs> they're adding is it, ads. Is it? To, I haven't checked. <laughs> well, oh, well oh, yeah, the ads, right? The ads to Oculus headsets is yep. kind of like oh um, shit. I'm just I'm just waiting for like, can someone please raise their hand and and uh, release uh, a true competitor to the Oculus? Like, <laughs> why is Facebook just running away with this? Mm. <laughs> it's mind blowing. Like, just just because well, in, in theory, I, uh, uh, Apple's coming right. Uh, but yes, yes. Well, but they're they doing are. augmented reality, and their whole premise and use case is very different than being kind of like strapped into the metaverse. I would think that um, uh, Epic would be more interested, you know, or you know, with the Unity engine and stuff like that, in terms of where that's going. Yeah, and, and these things are going to feed off each other, right? They're going to be people. They're going to be the people that only go Apple or only go Oculus. But there's also going to be the people that are just super excited to do both and use them in different use cases. And you know, Facebook is going to release a an augmented reality 
set of glasses at some point in Apple. I, I don't believe they'll go strictly AR. They're going to play with VR a little bit, right? Or, or maybe I'm wrong there. What do you think? You're talking about Apple? Yeah, I feel like they're, they won't just go straight into AR. Uh, My maybe. favorite rumor about Apple is like using this network of all of these devices and especially like the AirTags to create ways of locating AR things in the world. Agreed. Totally. Yep. That totally makes, makes sense. sense. It's certainly, they're certainly laying the groundwork for something there for sure. Yeah. I just think that you're going to be inside of this, like, you know, Apple headset where, you know, there's like an overlay in the world. You're going out in the world. Apple doesn't seem to be that interested in like sequestering people like away from their lived experiences. And maybe it's because it's really hard to like create compelling marketing videos where everyone is in their own isolated little, you know, yeah. helmet bubble. Like who wants that? I think it also feeds into like their purpose as a company. Like I've I've mm. been reading Start with Why by Simon Sinek and he yep. like raves about Apple all over that book, mm. right? And one of the things that he covers is like it's made for innovators and innovators don't tend to be the ones that are spending all of their time in their room. I I would yeah. add to that, right? Which is the, the music, media, entertainment, all that stuff, right? Like that's a very different vibe than people who are, you know, going into the metaverse and spending all their time jacked into the and the drugs. music people specifically, yeah. are like exclusively Apple. Yep. Yep. Well, so I don't, I don't doubt that they're again. Everything's definitely pointing to Apple doing AR, but I, I would find it hard to believe that they wouldn't give you, you know, some sort of option to, you know, do calm meditation in VR using the same pair of glasses, or you know, watch a movie and just blacking well, out everything they, else around you. They uniquely have that optionality. They they, do. That, that's sort of what I said uh, at the end of the show today about um, how you know Apple's uniquely placed to do some uh, sort of... If, if Apple did create, uh, you know, uh, you can have an Apple health clinic, they're mm-hmm. the only ones that can do it right now. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, they would drive that lifestyle. Right, well, because they have all the pieces there, you know? Um, yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh, can I, if if we're if we're if we're um, go for it, if our fumes are coming, uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> because we've been going for an hour. Can yeah. I, I want to, especially because and and Remy, uh, if if you haven't introduced yourself, you please do. Uh, I, I stepped up for a second, so maybe you did. But um, can can I throw one more out there that yeah. I specifically want Chris to talk about? Yeah. Uh, because you and I, Chris, haven't spoken about this. Okay. Um, Stripe. Yes. 
And I'm gonna say this because we're 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 talking top level stuff about like you know, strategery and things. Even like on today's show is all about uh, strategic stuff and things like that. Um, I keep coming back to this idea that the last time I can remember a company that there there you know uh, Uber was a huge startup, uh, Airbnb was a, hu- a huge startup. The last time I can remember a company that was this. Everyone was like, oh my God, this is so fundamental to everything that's happening in tech was Facebook. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, Chris specifically, but then, you know, Emil and Remy mm-hmm. too. Um, you guys, I think, have been around as long as I have. <laughs> Can you remember a company? I, I, I'm just saying that I can't. It, Facebook was the last company that I remember people were being like, "This is fundamental to a new shift and a new paradigm for tech and things I, like that." Okay. To, to, yes. And, go. And, and please, by the way, like please. Stripe sessions is happening today, and I think it's oh, actually, it's happening until the 30th of June. That is a very long. Okay, there's going to be many sessions. Um, I guess the, the way that I would look at this, and also Patrick Collison um, is also on future.com. He's written something there. So there's a little bit more of that connection to the previous story. Um, I would differ a little bit in the way in which Facebook was this all-consuming, uh, consumer-facing product and experience that set a number of norms and expectations and behaviors for regular people in terms of how they used computers. Stripe, on the other hand, is much more of a developer platform, business-focused enabler of identity-based transactions with a level of whether it's security or certainty or a reduction in fraud or whatever. Like I feel like Stripe and Shopify are the two companies that are the most interesting in the, um, let's say not consumer, but like the, uh, I guess the e-commerce space in terms of enabling so much new types of transactions in different contexts, you know, Shopify is being enabled inside of Instagram inside of uh, Google shopping, I think just added an integration with them. Like they are everywhere. And Stripe is turning out to be enabling so much of the creator economy by enabling developers and product builders to not focus on payments, which is, Oh my God, so hard, so difficult to get right. Like there's so much fraughtness in that. And Stripe just gives you this very straightforward API and, you know, they take their cut 3%. Okay. No big deal. That's like way less than our overall operating expenses. And, you know, you just take it to the bank. So what about Plaid? um, Plaid is interesting, but they're kind of like a legacy, uh, like ethernet type solution for dealing with old banks that just can't build APIs. Stripe is Plan, saying, screw that me, and let's do a whole new thing. Plan to me is closer to actual pipe pipes than, than what Stripe is doing. Huh. Right. Like This is going to be a very naive question, <laughs> sure. because I think the financial sector is something like I'm very not tapped in with. How come PayPal doesn't seem to be part of Yao's, <laughs> like even within this realm of uh, part of the conversation, but they all are like even even Square is even yeah. mm-hmm. the, the, the whole fintech space is a part of it. It's just that and and, and again, uh, if if I if I came in too hot about this, but what I'm saying is is that Stripe hits everything in the sense that in 2008, 
when Facebook clearly was going to win social, you're like, well, if I'm going to do e-commerce, if I'm going to do A, B, and C, there's got to be, they own the social graph. And so this is the platform that I have to play off of. I right? mean, maybe, maybe that's just it, right? Mm. Like there were some fundamental ideas in terms of how that platform was built out. You know, specifically the open graph was a very powerful, important idea that was enabled by a new kind of evolution in computing and databases. And so that graph structure is what allowed Facebook to build and create as many features and products as they did because they weren't stuck to a legacy architecture for how they rendered or stored data and information. It was all about the relationships. So similarly, Stripe is doing that for commerce and payments. For commerce because the, the, okay, I cannot tell you a company or a startup or whatever that is not that Stripe is not like a base level of yep. what they're doing. Totally. The APIification yep. of commerce is the genius of it. And so that then, as I've said on the show, the fact that I want to start covering every new product that Stripe does. Okay. So uh, well, we'll be the Stripe for uh, verifying identities. Stripe's going to do that. Uh, <laughs> right. We want to be the Stripe for, um, uh, 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 I don't know. Uh, anyway, it, it, the, the fact that Stripe can be all of these things is is the equivalent to my Well, to maybe, maybe that's mind. a better question. Like, what will Stripe yeah. be the Stripe of Stripe for? And let me try to unpack that. Like I'm thinking about how Uber, you know, in set the whole standard for Uber for X, right? On demand, anything, pick up your smartphone and I want something and it shows up. And there were a bunch of startups that were created around recognizing that transportation was this latent capability where there was excess demand because there's so many cars that are just lying around that no one's driving. And if you could tap into that resource and make it uh, liquid, now you can actually enable a whole host of new services out there. And the irony, and you know, through the uh, pandemic, Uber's saving grace was the fact that it was also a delivery service. So to your point, and the point that I'm trying to make is, obviously there's Stripe for payments. Very straightforward. You want to make a payment. You want to take credit cards. You want to do ACH. You want to do whatever. Stripe will handle that. But the thing that they just announced this week, I think, is Stripe Identity. So identity verification has been something that a lot of people have been building on. It's very important in the fintech space. Um, there's a bunch of startups. There was one that was in my YC batch um, called Verif. And what's interesting about Stripe adding this is like if it's just another familiar API call away, and not only are you doing payments, which maybe have a level of trustworthiness on one hand, now you're adding KYC or know your customer aspects to building apps that changes the nature of the types of apps that are going to be built and the way in which people are going to interact, right? If Twitter were to add Stripe identity verification and if the blue check bag badge uh, or the number of, let's say, new badges were added, so you had a set of attributes that are verified about a person and one of them is whether or not you know your driver's license has been identified and whatever, and that gives you extra access to Twitter, um, that may lead to a whole bunch of new normative behaviors on these platforms that are not possible today because it's so it's so crazy they're mm-hmm. also doing uh uh sales tax stuff right they're also yep. doing uh checking accounts they're doing like again this this is why it's crazy to me in in the sense that uh there was a time when social undergirded everything that people were doing in tech the fact that in essence stripe feels like it's undergirding everything that is not 
um, Apple's App Store and 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 Amazon. <laughs> it, it's everything that's not you know, these the, platforms. The other thing that's like interesting, and I don't know exactly whether this comes first or comes later, like as a result of success. You know, is Patrick Collison is a very well spoken, like you know, very smart dude. He's got like really interesting. He's very. Um, like Da Vinci esque in that he's somewhat of a Renaissance person and that he has interests all over the place and he can kind of yeah, talk by the at way, length if about I, lots of things. I, I recommended a, a long read with him and Noah Smith, yes, which was exactly. brilliant. Brilliant. Right. Go on. Hey, yeah, wait, so, Brian, an article? Uh, yeah, it was a long read from like three months ago. Yeah, uh, Noah Smith's Noah Smith. um, Substack, I think. Yeah, had, like this yeah. law. Actually, they kind of engaged in this letter writing thing where they went back and forth a couple times, um, and Patrick just you know talked about like I don't know the dawn of the century and this was happening there. He straight up. He straight up. <laughs> I said uh-huh. he straight up uh, laid the groundwork for what the next century of startups should be. What the what the economy should be evolving toward, it is that like right. open sky stuff. So he was saying. I, I guess what I'm saying in my question is, you know, Zuckerberg wanted to, you know, make the world more open and connected, and that was sort of his, you know, vision and his goal, and it was a very straightforward, direct line. Like Patrick Collison has a similar type of, I think, both expansiveness, you know, in his way that he thinks about things and talks about things, but also in terms of the vision that he has for Stripe. And I would say Bezos had a very similar story. Now, again, I don't know, again, to what degree media helps to shape and form these companies. And then it's sort of retrospectively like, oh, that's the way it was supposed to be all along. And that was my goal. But I think to your point, Brian, like the fact that you're saying it's crazy, well, maybe there are these, you know, founders and makers and builders that are tested over time and they happen to have the right vision and they start at the right moment such that when they succeed, their success is now built upon so much learning and there's so much further ahead of everyone else that it just becomes sort of a fait accompli and, mm. you know, the part of the seas just part, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Glad we have this unless, talk. Good talk. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we're on the same page then, Chris. Uh, we, we hadn't talked about Stripe before. So there we go. We're on the same page. Well, did, did uh, and, and I'm open for feedback. Like, is the way that I'm looking at this and explaining it, does that resonate for you? Does that sound right? To me? Yeah. Uh, again, this is a, it, it, I feel like it's, it's once in a decade, once in a generational yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. The people that I talk to, everyone just wants a piece of Stripe. Yeah. Stripe is the thing. It, it, it reminds me of Facebook. I think what it, it has is momentum. It reminds me of Google. Yeah, it's got yeah. momentum. Yeah. Yeah, it's really impressive. And I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to see what comes out of Stripe Sessions. I don't know if they're going to launch new products, but like you said, watching them closely is going to be very important. Just like, you know, when Facebook came out with their platform, I mean, there's just, there's periods in these companies' lives when they just are willing to take big bets and they've got a bunch of stuff that they've been working on for a while and that rolls out and you're like, whoa. Based on people's excitement about it, again, to put my history hat on, mm-hmm. I wrote a book you about did. the history of the internet. Um, if Amazon was the company of the 90s, Google was the company of the 2000s, Facebook was the company of whatever, yep. Like I think Stripe is, is the company of this decade. That is how excited people are in the investment world, in the money world. Um, 
about this company. Well, and, and the reason, you know, is because they didn't build, I think it was 402, uh, the 402 code in HTTP, uh, which was for payments. And so Stripe is going to be the default way that payments are enabled for this creator economy. Then that's the paradigm shift that's going to happen. It's moving away from Google's advertising and Facebook's advertising uh, what's two decades, a duo decade. I don't, I don't know if that's a word anyways, two, you know, a 20 year period where advertising was the primary way that people made money and extracted value from the internet. And now we're moving a fort, more towards a fourth decade, a fourth decade. Fort decade. Right? Fort decade. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay. I think we've exhausted ourselves. I think it is going to be interesting. This move away from advertising that we're seeing just from the move towards privacy. I, Okay. Hmm. Well, the, the privacy thing is interesting. Actually, I will say one thing that I want to point about this, and I've been thinking about this this week, and there's been some conversations and stories about Apple and China, and to what degree Apple's hands are bound to behave in certain ways because of their success in China. And in other words, like they have to be building these things as a human right, starting from the kind of Western perspective, because they are so screwed if they don't. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll just go with that. Very much so. No, no. <laughs> we've kind of seen that in a lot of different markets, if I'm not mistaken. Like, we've seen Some it more. everywhere from Apple to entertainment with movies. What do you mean? Like, in like movie studios. And correct me if I'm misunderstanding. Oh, I see. Saying, but, like, movie studios going, oh, no, we're, we will restructure our movies and make sure our actors... Uh, around the Chinese market. What your country like wants right like so the nba you know to offending uh, someone in china and then they you know yeah. to bring that back and, and also re-editing scenes because yep, they re-edit yep. scenes that's right to include like cities from china <laughs> i guess what i'm saying is that encryption isn't something that you can like edit in after you know in, in post-production like you either are encrypted and you're encrypted at the root and ideally the keys are not stored in the same you know data warehouses as they are in china um and so I think Apple's got to take such a hard line because once you open that can of worms up at all, then you just can't go back. And more and more countries and governments are starting to demand. I mean, whether it's Russia, whether it's Nigeria, um, they want to have more control over these media platforms. And that's where a company's true values and fortitude, um, you know, where the rubber meets the road, as they say. I mean, the fact that Twitter moved out of Nigeria and, you know, Jack was tweeting things about, about that, that <laughs> um, you know, is significant. Well, Apple has kind of given into China's demands, right? It's, it's kind of crazy how, how, to what extent they did. If you saw, if you guys saw the, uh, I think it was the New York times report, um, like all, the Chinese government just owns all the data, all Apple user data, uh, Chinese users. Yeah. It's, 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 I don't think anyone was aware to what extent <laughs> that, that how bad that got or good. I mean, depending on your point of view of the world. Well, I mean, but, but what Tim Cook has said, when which is true of all execs, you know, is that they do have to abide by the rules and the laws of the countries that they're in. So if you want to do business in China, as much as we want to have the American perspective represented elsewhere, you know, it doesn't really make sense for Chinese law to be applied in the United States, which is why the whole TikTok fiasco is so confusing. It's like, you know, what is actually going on here? And we still don't really have a great answer, but we've kind of moved on from that. Whereas Apple has a huge amount of business in China, and so they have to abide by the laws. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think Tim Cook's 
dance in China, like I think that's going to be studied for for decades. What he managed to pull pull off to get access to the world's biggest market and the world's biggest factories, um, and still have decent relations back in the U.S. is is, is frankly impressive. It, it is. It is. Um, I want to bring Emily up real quick here before we wrap up. Oh hey, thanks. Yeah. Um, so on on Apple, just two two quick things that By this the way, all brings who, up for who, me. Who are you? And oh, hi. not only who are you, but like <laughs> what's relevant for us now? Sure. <laughs> thanks for coming out. Oh, space spaces is weird. Um, <laughs> so, hi, my name is Emily. Um, I'm a I'm a fellow at the uh, Beck Center at Georgetown University. I'm an adjunct faculty faculty at Georgetown Columbia, where I teach um, at sort of this nexus of technology and, and public policy. Perfect. And um, I've spent the better part of my career at in public interest tech. Okay, you so, are um, um, the perfect person to talk to about this stuff. <laughs> Um, so, uh, one quick note, um, before I get into the, the question that I had, um, yeah. is, uh, I don't know if you all are following, but, uh, what happened with Apple and the DOJ, but Apple just, yes. um, totally. yeah, so I, I, that may have been the, the genesis of this, but I think that adds a really interesting kind of layer to, to this conversation. Well, so I want to, and maybe you have a little more, um, background, but my, the thing that I feel like is not being talked about in that story is that the um, the way in which the DOG, DOJ went after a number of, well, actually several lawmakers, um, iCloud accounts was through the unencrypted backups. And now I think that iCloud now does default to encryption because of that. Now, Apple talked about something along those lines a couple years ago, but they didn't talk about this specific case. And so it feels like Maybe that uh, vulnerability um, is no longer present, but I, I don't fully know oh, that's interesting. what is encrypted in iCloud now. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, but I think that's a really good question because, yeah, my understanding is that they did not. Nothing nefarious happened in terms of the way that those records were. Correct. Exactly. Um, yeah, they were. It was through. Like, like if, if a it was not encrypted and, and it was on the server, and there was exactly. a subpoena, you know, and then a gag order, all of that was actually fair due process, and right. was yeah. you know probably happening with pedophiles and all the rest. And so yeah, the difference is now they're saying, well, if that data is now encrypted at rest then you can subpoena it all you want, but you're going to get a bunch of gibberish. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's definitely a debate to be had as to whether or not that um, that there were things that could have happened, at, particularly at the DOJ, to mm. prevent something like that from happening. But that's, you know, that's a different But isn't that the role of the DOJ? Like if, you know, the yeah, president yeah, instructs precisely. the DOJ to go do that, right? That's the role. Um, yeah, I think they're... Yes. We don't know who signed the subpoenas. um, Precisely. Right? And so, actually, Kara Swisher had a great um, podcast about this, I think, this week, if you want to check that out. Um, Yeah, I was literally just listening to it. Okay, great. (laughs) But I don't think she addressed that question. She did ask the question, as you're asking, which is, who authorized this, and what was their thinking, and why would they do this? And, of course, it's, you know, Trump and his... um, what a wild goose chases or whatever, um, his witch hunts, ironically. He was, you know, it was so... I'm not going to go there, but he often would talk about the things that he said other people were doing that he himself was doing. So, but yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the, the question real quick, and yeah, I you know, feel, feel free to punt on this, but sure. you all were talking about Stripe. And um, yeah. one of the questions it raises for me um, is thinking through, you know, the, we have these really fascinating transformative um, platforms that are and products that are creating 
that are enabling us to move money around in, in completely different ways. And and one of the things that I um, I am noticing is that a lot of these companies are not um, they are not thinking about sort of the downstream or what's it called the downside risk and harm that can come of um, frictionless money moving, um, which is related to sort of essentially like anti money laundering and like sanctions. Um, stuff um, related to like foreign can policy. You so, that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah, just so there are after nine eleven, uh, a series of um, uh, a series of laws were put into place to um, to essentially for the banking system to essentially be able to track. Yep what money is going where, yep. right? The movement of money in, in some form um, yep. that ties back to like foreign, foreign policy. Right. Um, in, in terms of like in, how sanctions in, is done and everything like that, that's part of this. Correct. Correct. So when one of my questions here is how can these companies, and what, what am I, what am I trying to say here? Hmm. The companies don't think about this in the early stages of their product development. And what ends up happening is they they create something interesting and then they start attracting attention. And then the legal stuff starts setting in and the regulatory questions start setting in. And the what I find myself wondering is, is there a way for these companies to, to in the initial stages, um, be sort of more aware of what those constraints are and how to build products that won't potentially be sort of broken or changed as they as they develop and gain momentum. This is uh, I don't know if that's like a real problem or a perceived problem, but just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, it one is it it, it, it is a real problem. Um, however. And I know Brian's got something to say here, and I'll, I'll let him say in a, in a second. But one of the real challenges with all products is the unlikelihood that it's going to work at all. And so there are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, you know, questions, uh, concerns, like what happens if. And the problem seems to be, at least from a product design perspective, is what happens if it never does right? We've built in all these protections in places and you end up with more or less stagnation or holding on to the way things are done because oftentimes the way things are done with all that bureaucracy is because of past exploitations and patches to the system to prevent the same types of abuses from happening again. And so now we find ourselves in a new environment, a new with new capabilities, new technology. And so we can make the same mistakes a little bit differently this time. And that's how innovation kind of happens. And I can say more about that, but Brian, what did you want to, what did you want to add? Yeah. And by the way, uh, Emily, you, you maybe are way more versed in the space than I am, but one of the weird things, again, I, please, I, I have no investment in Stripe. I wish I did. <laughs> wish. I, I'm not, I, I, so I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, talking them up as, but one of the things that I've always been impressed about is like, they to my understanding, have have been one of the most like we can only do A, B, and C because we are in this financial realm. Um, I, I think that I do like, think Square, that, that Stripe, yeah, was way more conservative yeah, along the way. That was always my impression of them, and 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 Square as well until they went into crypto. And maybe it, maybe that's maybe my impression of that is because now we have this whole crypto fintech realm where it's the wild west and people are doing all sorts of whatever they want over yeah, I was going to say like that's kind of like the 
there are two directions this can go in. You know, Stripe is sort of uh, integration into the legacy systems in many ways. Crypto is like rewriting this stuff all together. And if you want to like think about the next 9-11, like I would imagine that crypto would be a lot more attractive for that purpose than going yeah, to Stripe. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, I heard stories about like when, when Stripe got, or not Stripe, but Square got started, like, well, the only way that this happened is because uh, <clears throat> Jack knew somebody that was very deep in like the financial realm and like Goldman Sachs or whatever. And like, they knew the laws and they knew this yeah. tiny little narrow angle that they could go into that they could chisel a little bit of money from. And, and, and uh, again, I'm not making, um, uh, I'm not an apologist for Stripe or Square or anybody like that, but um, FinTech is a crazy wild west right now. Um, but um I, I do feel like uh, Stripe has been very conservative right now, so yeah. I don't know. That's 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 my sense too. And you know, Emily, if you have like specific examples where you've seen something that either Stripe has done or Square or other folks have done, like that'd be interesting to find out. I mean, a good example of this recently was you know with Twitter introducing tipping and the way in which PayPal works is that you have to know someone's email address and that when you send someone money, the email address is exposed. This is working as intended, working as designed because the email was the unique identifier, like a serial number uh, or your uh, social security number for receiving that payment. But suddenly people were, uh, you know, up in arms because they felt like their PI was being revealed um, when they used this, this product. And so you run into situations like that where it's like, oh, I thought people just knew that that's. And I will say this, you know, listen, and I'm not Mm -hmm. anti-crypto either, but uh, when you see PayPal and everybody going into crypto, I feel like this is them taking the shackles off. And being like, <laughs> we can we can be a little loosey goosey where we haven't been able to before, because um, it, there's the laws aren't quite so clear and things like well, that. Well, I mean, but, there's also um, just like emergent behavior, like GameStop um, and Wall Street bets and coordinated behavior that wasn't really possible before, and. <sighs> It, like there, there's a lot of people who are indoors who had extra money from, you know, the stimulus money or whatever, um, who got involved. And I just, I feel like maybe there's another part of this. Um, and Emily, you can push back on me, but where our conversation about money and the way that we think about money and talk about money is actually not very highly developed. It's not highly evolved. There are people who spend a lot of time talking about money and know all the things and the ins and outs, but for a vast, I almost would say majority of people, Money is a very sensitive topic. That's almost like talking about like sex. And I do want to like, oh, go there. You know, I want to throw in here because I just yeah. graduated college, like <laughs> especially in higher education. Like just between students, yeah, just talking about money was such a, a thing. Like if if one student even knew how to how credit scores worked, mm. you were like the most knowledgeable financial person in your entire social. Society. Totally, and and, and like that's how like misinformation in spreads. Like there was one guy that knew some like decent amount about investing. He would literally hold seminars for the other people in the fraternity because so so few people knew anything about managing any type of money. Yeah. And I don't know if the system like prefers people to be like that, or if it's just so taboo because it's so fraught or because, you know, we just haven't really, you know, reconciled the issues around having money and not having money in this country. And, uh, you know, what wealth is like and what success is like. And, you know, as Prof G talks about, like your number of mates sort of expands as the more wealth you seem to accrue, you know, I think 
overall it's, it's, it's just all of it <laughs> it's all of it Finance. yeah no and i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's like that it's it's like intentional it's just negligence right it's just mm. like the system doesn't care um it's not a priority the question that you have i'm not about sure it's the, not intentional by the way i, right, I, I think it's i think it's 100 intentional we could definitely teach finance in in school if we I, if we wanted to i agree i think another side of that is that there's uh, a pervasive mentality for a lot of people of um, if you want more money, save more versus earn more, hmm. um, which is something that I only caught from a book that I read. But like I see that a lot from, you know, more higher value people that I talk to. It's like the conversation becomes, all right, how do I earn more or how do I leverage mm-hmm. more skills rather than, OK, how do I save more of this salary so then I can have more money to spend? It's it's so much, and I, I suppose I've been thinking about this a lot personally, um, because I've gone through uh, my own journey, you know, with regards to what money is and how it affects me and how much it might undermine my credibility or integrity. Um, and when you realize that it's more about currency, it's about movement, it's about calories, it's about you know what do I need to survive and what do I need to nourish myself and what do other people around me who are doing valuable or useful things need in order for them to keep doing those things, and then I want to contribute to what they're doing that. I don't know, that dynamic like changes things and removes at least some of the stigma that I had about money. And so the idea that you would actually go out and try to earn and try to add value and be useful, um, I think is a very different attitude than wanting to save or protect or hold on to. You know, my my dad grew yeah. up during the depression and you know, he had an ex- expressed, you know, his his response to that trauma was to become more of a hoarder. Because he knew what it was to like not have and the fear that came along with that. And so I picked up some of his bad habits and some of his kind of hurt ideas about money. And that really held me back for a long time. So the fact that we don't have a more healthy conversation, a more inclusive, more open conversation about this stuff, like obviously, yes, I agree. It's, it's negligence. Um, and it also makes it probably harder to have these conversations about what Stripe is and what they're doing and how they're going to change things. And, you know, Emily, back to your original question about like, what happens when money can move so freely? I was going not towards the terrorist route, but what, how people will have their money taken from them by people who are more savvy and sophisticated about charging, you know, whether yeah. those are recurring yeah, subscriptions absolutely. or stuff like that. Like, how do you build in a kind of forgiveness into the system for people who are going to inevitably be exploited by the system? I yeah. think it's crazy and this, it we- raises something that I think about a lot on the on the product side and particularly with my work related to government services is that is the role that friction plays like sometimes friction is actually a good thing yeah. Yeah. and creating these like entirely frictionless systems and making that the enemy has some in many forms um, bad consequences yeah. that, that take on different forms. I think it's also super interesting how we've seen this happen with social currency as well. Right, it's like some people who can game, like people who can set up follow for follow rooms on clubs. Yeah, yeah, like things like that, where it's like gaming the system, like allowing it to have such a frictionless experience. Sometimes can allow it to to be easier to game, and then the people who are willing to game the system purely for the rewards. Or the the short term. Well, that's that's speculation, right? But for those rewards, it's like. Well, they're playing they a different game. 
yeah, where it's more about self-aggrandizement and winning. And, you know, like I have an account on BitClout and the number of weird messages and interactions that I have that I've never had on Twitter because money really isn't a, a first-class citizen on Twitter. Um, yeah. It's, it's significant. Um, okay. I brought up, let's see, back to basics if he wants to jump in real quick. Oh, let's see. My question was on the legality of, uh, let's see, of some of these policies, things like, is this going to be a proactive or reactive uh, type of approach in watching money for, uh, let's see, to see if it will go to terrorism or something like that? Do, do you need a warrant? Uh, is this just to make it easy whenever that warrant is, uh, let's see, uh, comes to comes to life or... Uh, is this a proactive measure to see where the money is flowing all the time? You know, one of the and interesting things that came out, sorry to cut you off, but I think where you're going with this is like how, and, and to Emily's question and point, do we write laws sort of to anticipate bad things that are going to happen? Or do we do it retroactively, you know, as we're sort of seeing this whole antitrust thing move through? It's like, oh, we don't like the way that things got to be, but had we put these protections in place, um, you know, beforehand, then maybe we wouldn't have never gotten Instagram. We would have gotten WhatsApp, like whatever. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's really, I, I think that is like one of the million dollar questions right now, right? Mm. Because you can't, there is just no way to know how people are going to manipulate a product. <laughs> just, there's just like, I don't think anyone could have dreamed up the way Twitter has been used. I mean, when, when I put out launched, the hashtag, I had no idea that people were going to abuse it the way they did. I mean, I was just hoping, right. you know, my friends would use it. Precisely. Yeah. So that's, I think that is, that is like the default desire of people who are in like positions of, uh, of power and are accountable and under, um, under public scrutiny, right. Is like, they must be able to foresee all the bad things and, and plan for all of the potentially bad scenarios. But like, that is quite literally not the world we live in. And I think for policymakers, it creates a real challenge because, and for, and for, um, companies, right. And for, for the, the companies in, in these products is that we need to shift the way we think about product development and lawmaking Say more for about this that. new world. What is this shift that you're describing? What, so on the product side, what I mean is you have a great idea, you develop a cool thing, and it's going great. And at the beginning, you should assume, that you, the, the assumption should no longer be, I'm building this awesome thing and everything will be great. The assumption should be, maybe I'll succeed and also people will abuse this. So like for, the black mirror approach to product of exactly, design. Exactly. There is a black mirror side to the thing that I'm creating. And I don't know what it is, but it is my job as a product developer or as a CEO or whatever to set my company up and my product team up in a way that they will be able to identify what that is. Like they'll be looking for it. I, we don't know what it's going to be, but there's going to be something. Have you ever right? listened and, to yeah. Katarina Fake's um, Wait But Why podcast? No. Okay. No, highly, highly recommend this. Katarina Fake was uh, the co-founder of Flickr, which was sort of the predecessor to Instagram in some respects. Um, she's great. And she basically has an entire podcast asking this question. You know, it's like, it's like being like a five-year-old. It's like, but why? 
but why, why are you sure that's a good idea? Do you really think it's going to go the way you think it's going to go? And I think she has a couple seasons and I think maybe in the second season, she actually talks to some founders who are in this very early phase. And she's like, well, how about these, how, how about we sort of game out some negative aspects of how this could go? But, you know, I think with complex systems and the interaction between these complex systems, it's really, really hard to know. Right. So, Maybe Emily, like, have you seen, or are there companies or groups that have done this? Cause I, I feel like maybe in the medical realm or other places like that, where it's highly regulated, but also highly against innovation and you end up with stagnation and just kind of, well, we're going to keep doing this way because we've decided that this is the safest way to do it. And if we try something else, it might go really poorly. Um, I, like, I, don't... I feel like this feeds into what Emily was saying about friction. Okay. About like, th- like, a lot of people, it seems like uh, the the Holy Grail is having like the frictionless thing from the beginning, right? Um, is, I think or, not it the depends Holy on Grail, who's experiencing like, the friction and why they yeah. don't want to experience it. Yeah, it is like having the the frictionless in between the the interactions is like what a lot of people seem to aim for. Meanwhile, they kind of do that. It almost seems like to Emily and your point to jump the gun because then it just makes it way easier for those black mirror things to occur earlier. Like something that I think of consistently is like, there's this, uh, the situation with Apple's app store, right? Where they do all of this, they charge that 30%, but it's be, they say it's because it's all of this policing of their app store. Yep. What part of that is the friction, right? Cause the 30% adds the friction on top of how, closely they police it and how that feeds into why people actually want to use Apple, even if they don't consciously know that that's why they want to use Apple. So just to put a little context here and to, it's not even playing like devil's advocate. It's providing some context. Steve jobs didn't want to open the app store. Like the app store was put there because he was convinced to do that, but he wanted everything on the iPhone to be made by Apple. And so had he won, I don't know if we'd be having the same, I mean, we would not be having the same conversation, but we also might not have Instagram and we might not have TikTok. So, right, because Apple's social products suck. So then what? I don't disagree. At the same time, I think there is a case to be made. It's like all of the apps that Apple does make, yeah, they're late on the, it's like that MKBHD video where you did, where like, this is why Apple's late to everything. Yeah. Right, well, it's just feeds into this. Us, uh, They're late like, because they make every single thing work with everything else. Sure, right. Well, their their right. level of interop and integration, at least within themselves, is much greater than what everyone else has to do. And as a result, or perhaps a necessity, they do have to do all the testing and try everything out yeah. with everything else. You know. And for me personally, that's one of the reasons why I prefer Apple is because of all of the integration. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Emily, if you wanted to jump in because you you did make the original point about the friction. No, I think uh, you guys have my my uh, wheels, the wheels turning <laughs> in my brain, <laughs> a couple of directions. I mean, it's the the bottom line on all of this is that like we just don't know, <laughs> right? Like no one knows. These are questions that have not been asked, let alone at this scale at any other point in human history. Well, we've never right? been like, able to roll been, out products at this scale to as many people as 
possible, right? Like exactly. the fact that it's virtual and not physical also means that like that is a, an enormous, that is literally removing friction. Like literally yeah. there is none. <laughs> We're talking about light, light beams. That's right. That's the ultimate removal That's of right. friction. Exactly. And I think what that does is it puts us in this place where solving these problems requires a a comfort with ambiguity that I think is really mm. hard for humans to digest. Totally. Yeah. And like virtually impossible. Wait, wait, wait but let me push you on. What are accept. we solving for? <laughs> Uh, we don't know. This okay. is what I mean. Like, okay. so like on the question, bringing it, bringing it down to like a granular level, yeah. right? Like on the, on the product side, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're rolling out like the next stripe. Yeah. How do you anticipate the black mirror side? The answer is you can't. How do lawmakers know how to write policy and law and regulation that will, that will protect the public from that black mirror? They don't know. They don't know. They have to be able well, they have to see and I, something I, and respond to correct. it. Correct. Right? Exactly. And so like, the bad it, thing has to happen in order, you know, you have to put the stop sign up after the accident has happened. Because the biggest thing then, is the response. Right. And, 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 the product, yep. and the product people, what it, what it means is, A, we don't actually have answers. And B, in that situation, it means that we, what we need is a scenario in which product companies can... Uh, can be honest and will not be <laughs> right. Will not be um, punished for the black mirror because it's going to appear. But if they, if they are stewards of the public in yeah. some form, right. And they are working in the public interest in some form, there has to be a connection early enough on before it becomes a real problem where the product team can say, Hey, Hey, red flag. Here's a thing that we're seeing. Hey, lawmakers, can you help us X, Y, Z? And like treat it much more as a partnership as opposed to this like extraordinary but that require contentious a relationship. The way that Do policy feel- is done. Oh yeah, totally. Okay. It totally does. <laughs> Do we feel like there's too much weight of or the the scale is tipped too far towards everything being the platform's responsibility versus the individual <laughs> actor on the platform? You're speaking my language now. I, I think it's it's a mix, and and I say that because <sighs> I don't biggest, know. Uh, go ahead. One of my biggest uh, points on this conversation that I always think about is copyrights. Okay. For example, just because I come from music, so this is just mm. one of my biggest touch points on this is yeah. like the the touch point of copyrights being played on live, right? So then you have these situations where like music labels will go to the platform. Like it's the platform's fault that music mm-hmm. got played on their platform versus. Well, it's, it's a choke point. It's the individual. Right? It's the most right? uh, efficient. On top of, yeah. Yes. At the same time, it's like bars don't like the city doesn't get in trouble when the bars do it. The bars have to pay for the license to do it in their place. But I think it's about an enforcement at that point. Right. I think it also has to do with what is happening, right? Like what is the problem because, and, and what is the impact on the public? So like disinformation that undermines democracy is on like in a completely different place than, you know, than copyright infringement. And then like even more, even more, I think urgent is and acute to people is stuff like, 
you know, when mass shooters live stream the shooting on like Twitch, for example, like that is a thing that is like pretty, pretty like indisputably harmful, harmful to the public. So I, and again, but again, it gets to this, like, we don't know, like there's no real conversation happening here. And what makes me nervous is that each camp kind of like doubles down in their layer (laughs) and like gets more attached to the things that they know about. And and that they can control. And what has to be happening is really like the opposite. Like we need more real interaction between these companies and policymakers, not the like show that happens periodically. There's also the weird paradox off of the point that you just mentioned, for example, the, the incidents that would happen over live, right? Where when something happens live, it's like, there's such a split second, like there's a reason why like TV kind of runs at a couple second uh, laps, but there's also this part of when everything's made for everybody, not everybody is a good actor. Mm-hmm. So how do you, so well, it's also like, are you designing you for perfection, so fast, especially on a live thing, right? Like, the number of negative or antisocial streams. I mean, obviously there's a spectrum, but relative to the overall number of streams that are positive or kind of neutral or just, you know, banal, I I would imagine that there's like a million to one, if not a hundred million to one. And yet obviously we fixate and focus on that one that, that it does do so much harm and damage. But the amount of energy and effort that would it take to eradicate that, um, I think, is huge. And then we ask the platforms to do that for us because, you know, back to the point about individual responsibility, it's really hard to ask everyone on the platform to take that responsibility and know when they see something that is really distasteful to, like, turn away from it and not look at it. But, you know, we want the platform to, to do it for us. Yeah, you're doing, and you're dealing with you know human behavior and like natural <laughs> yes. market, right? Like people want to watch that for whatever reason. Like people are watching it, yep. and uh, you know this this kind of gets into a realm where my colleagues at the law school at Georgetown and uh, and others um, and others uh, know way way more about these these questions and how sort of it breaks down on the on the legal and the. Um, and the regulatory side. So if you it would ever be, want it would to, be really interesting, I guess, you know, Emily, to your point, like to, I agree with you on the one hand that there needs to be more communication, more discussion, you know, for these groups to come together and to maybe, you know, see each other's perspective. If they were to change roles, they would suddenly realize the level of compromises and the challenges and the trade-offs that each side is making to achieve the thing that they're trying to achieve. On the one hand, you're trying to just survive, to just build something that people want and that is you know good enough for the purpose that you set out to solve for. And then on the flip side, the policy side, you're trying to protect people and keep them safe and you know not have society fall off a cliff. And yet, if you are, are too tight on your regulations, then nothing ever gets done because everyone's like, well, what's in it for me? Like, totally, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. It's like these social this, audio platforms. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, Clubhouse, Clubhouse is actually a, um, yep. an interesting example on on many levels. But I mean, I was um, there in the beginning of Clubhouse in March of 2020, and I was talking to Paul, and I was talking to Josh Elman, who's actually now at Apple, and previously was at Facebook. Um, and so I was specifically bringing up my concerns about abuse and about what could happen on that platform um, with how open it was. And the message that I got told at the time was like, we don't even know if this is going to work if we build in all of these anti abuse like aspects now what if that inhibits anybody adopting this at, at all and we're going to use all of our resources on that and you know and eventually they've they've had to add it and in fact actually it's interesting i did sign up for um green room from spotify today and there's like four or five blocks that come up that are like you know you need to be positive and don't say bad things and don't say hate or Chris, and, if i'm being honest yeah that is one of the things that i want to hear the most from you is your opinion on green room <laughs> <laughs> oh no we've done it we've become meta i don't have an opinion yet it's just it sucks right now and hopefully it'll get better but to to the conversation you're bringing up uh, yeah. we were talking about like two seconds ago it's like one of the biggest uh conversations today from a lot of social audio creators is like why would i use green room right it's like this what will you do for me <laughs> ah I see. In that sense, like exactly what you said. Like, yeah. exactly. For me, right, it's like the whole proposition of uh, Spotify's pushing Anchor as a way to, you know, start your podcast. And if you want to do that, easily record your Clubhouse-like social audio room. Uh, it's all built in. Good to go. Batteries included. Yeah, and it is for, I think the one thing I do want to highlight is just this conversation, especially with social platforms. It's like that everybody's like, okay, what what is the value add here? Because in the beginning of social platforms, if somebody wants to move, they it seems that the most powerful thing is exposure. Exposure, exposure, exposure. How many eyeballs am I going to get on my things? You know, if we just At defeated the, the ego, time, we'd be fine. Yes. I agree. <laughs> Mostly kidding, but... <laughs> Versus, you know, this, this kind of long-term thought, which is like, okay, what the integrations... and Like, I kind of talked about this with somebody on the timeline today. It's like, it seems like a lot of it's coming down to integrations, uh, this monetization and community and or engagement and like eyeballs. Yeah. You know, the thing that's sort of like disappointing about this part of the conversation is that we've now moved on from a world where we're talking about kind of new products and technology and they're like, is that cool? Is it fun? Like, do you want to hang out there? Like, is it interesting? Yeah, man. Like, that's my favorite part. Like, I love... I know, so but like it's become like so commercial so fast, right? Because whether it's YouTube or whether it's influencers or just there's sort of an, an expectation that, hey, I'm a creator. You need me more than I need you. Everyone wants my attention. They want my content. What is what is yeah. the real world except the place to make content for the internet? Sorry, that was the line again from the beginning. I'm bringing this all full circle. No, Chris, you're not wrong. Because it's, like, it's also this conversation. It's like, and this is something that I feel like I've started to realize being so involved in the internet and especially through social audio, I think has been the medium for me because that's what brought me into the internet after mm. being such a in real life person for so long. Mm. Um, this realization is like so much of this thing called authentic, mm -hmm. right? Is essentially just when people go, I'm not actually making content to make content. You're like, I'm doing this because I just wanted to, because like, I was I'm just cooking an dinner addict. and I, you know, turned on my phone. I'm just an addict doing this thing that I absolutely love doing. Ah. And you happen to love the fact that I love it. <laughs> yep. 
I mean, when you find that, that's great, right? That's purity. That's like, that's the ideal. But now it's yeah. a business. Anyways, I feel like we're, we're like ending on like a, a, a less great note, but. Um, we all just wanted to go back to the 90s. It's and- like what happens, what happens on Clubhouse, which is all rooms go back to Clubhouse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I really did not want that to happen this time, but so it goes. Um, I, I brought up one more quick speaker, George, Matt George Silverman. Do you want to make a quick point? Uh, he's muted. One day we're going to be all really great at this platform. Guarantee it. <laughs> okay. Steve, did you want to say something? Uh, no, I just kind of jumped down the tail end. I think it's a fascinating conversation though. I just, I think about, um, you know, policy and regulators and there's, there's this whole thing today about, um, you know, they want to pass a law where you can't have pre-installed apps, uh, right. from whatever it's just crazy to think about and i just think about like what's the bigger picture here of multinational companies and you know there might be a law that somebody could say something in one country and not the other than vice versa as like you have like little fiefdoms of social networks but that, that, that's already the case like you can't talk about nazis in france so like there's a whole part of google which we can access in the united states that people in france can't that already happens i think that's so funny and this conversation pops up with like these borderless, like countries are less countries and more like these kind of amoebas <laughs> that form around not only like the people, well, but it's a also set of conventions and norms ecosystem. and ways that people have made sense about their yeah. lived experience. And then they codify it so that their children don't end up drinking from the well that was poisoned, you know, 15 years ago when uncle bud went and like, you know, drank from it. And so now there's like a prohibition against something, something. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of how this yeah. all happens. It's all a massive memory system to remind ourselves what, you know, don't put your finger in the light socket. Yeah. Well, this is what makes, I think, social audio though, a completely new beast for especially the hmm. like public safety, legal, uh, regulatory, all of these questions because it is ephemeral. Uh-huh. There's no real footprint. This one won't be, and, but yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, but so to to the point that was made about each like countries having different uh, laws, right? Yeah, yeah. If you talk about Nazis, yeah. if you're German yeah. and you're on Clubhouse, you can say whatever you want. Like mm. it, it's it's kind of like a wild west. Mm. It's this weird turf that's very hard to adhere to national boundaries, essentially. And the same is true for the the money, right? So one of the reasons that I. I I um, pointed to Clubhouse as being an interesting product to look at for some of these questions is because there there are very clear documented uh, there's very clear documentation of um, people who are like literally on sanctions lists being on Clubhouse and like also transferring money <laughs> right so um, yep Clubhouse. Clubhouse is in this like weird place, and I think social audio in general is going to be there, where it's going to be much harder to to wrap our hands around the the product and sort of what that looks like um, across borders. And I don't know what that means, but I just, it's just one an one question and thought or provocation, perhaps I think is whether you know we're we're seeking perfection or sort of a more almost like machine learning type kind of rough 
way of controlling reality to be somewhat more consistent over time. In other words, like it's really hard to like track down those folks, you know, unless you create these really invasive identity systems so that when they show up on clubhouse, like some big alarm goes off and their tipping, you know, jar goes away or whatever. But how do you know, how do you allow for anything that's generative, you know, to exist or for freedom to exist whatsoever without, you know, bumping into things from time to time. And there's because the 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 flip side to it is that when you when you require um, essentially like, uh, like identity proofing and authentication yep. essentially for Which is what for we're talking about with everybody yep yeah I mean that that covers some problems but it creates new ones which means that. Um, people who work on like human rights in, um, in authoritarian regimes cannot yep. use these products because they cannot right. use their real names. So it's, you know, it's complicated. The cryptocurrency that China's making. Right. Like that's a perfect example. I feel like of what y'all are talking about. I, I, I mean, George, this is George. Oh, Oh, George. Welcome. Thank you so much. I, I remember what I wanted to say before. Okay. Um, uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, when you were talking about friction, um, it's worth pausing and thinking about the idea that we have eliminated the ultimate friction, which is geography. This is the mm-hmm. first time the human race has basically repealed the law of geography. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Is That is mind-blowing. I was giving mind skills advice to a bunch of young men in India today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it freaks me out. It's just, uh, you know, a bunch of guys in India and Africa. And, uh, I, on, on that point. Know, God knows what their, their personal... Um, yes. I, I was just going to add to Go that. Ahead, I'm sorry. In a, in, a, in a way, like, the thing that's amazing about, like, yes. being post, you know, geographic um, is that you get to connect to everyone. And in some ways see or hear about their experience. The problem though, is that we didn't all grow up with the same context and the same sense making approaches. And so we haven't done a great job of teaching a core skill of curiosity and patience and listening and active listening such that when you encounter someone who has a completely different way of understanding the world. And like I said, like there's these random semi-random things that people will uh, invoke in a conversation that comes from their culture based on their cultural norms and ways of remembering things that you don't remember because your culture never experienced those things. And then yep. you have a conflict. Yeah. And, building on what you just said, the, mm-hmm. we have lost the, I hate to sound like an old fogey, but we have lost the, the, <laughs> the, the ability to have rational, constructive conversations. Did we, we have, have that ability? Fi- uh, yeah, well, between different cultures. Yes and no. No, yes and no. But we have certainly reverted to the, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade level of assertion, counter assertion, and yeah. insulting your mother. I mean, <laughs> it, it is just insane. The, the people don't know how to. They want to have a debate. They don't know how to sit down and have a mutually constructive conversation where people learn and people admit. Gee, you know, I didn't really quite take that into account. That's really interesting. How do I, I modify somewhat, my opinion? I somewhat disagree, only because I, I think the core of it is slightly different, where I think it's the issue of the patience. 
I think it's it's also, I would add just like self-awareness and self-knowledge and the ability to receive criticism and to evaluate you know, information and decide whether you want to respond to it or not. Well, now you're like, there's a lot of people. Now you're in my wheelhouse. The (laughs) idea idea is, is that it's not only self-awareness because if you usually when people think about self-awareness, they think about being aware of the thoughts and emotions they're having, Mm -hmm. but they don't go to the meta level of being aware of the process they're in Mm. while they are in it. Mm Mm-hmm. So they can't modify. They don't say, why are we having this discussion? What is this about? What is the end point? What are we trying to accomplish here? By what method are we using? They don't do that. Like but, the biggest example is like when you get into a fight with your girlfriend and then you go, wait. Like the people who are unable to go, why are we even fighting? Now? <laughs> <laughs> My, I, I have a 55-year-old marriage and it is wonderful. Congratulations. And any, almost Congratulations, man. Thank you. Almost any time, my wife is a is a psychologist and and specializes in couples therapy. So it helps to have a ah, couple therapy. Yes, <laughs> helps to have a you have a competitive advantage over many. It also helps that I'm perfect. But <laughs> it, it, it also that's what she you know, said, right? But, but we, we when we start a fight, we almost always end up hysterically laughing. <laughs> That's the way you know, to do it because it's because we're so process oriented. Uh, it's like what the hell's going on here? Yeah, you know, and it, it, it's usually one of us or both of us are acting childish. There's also a big uh, case of like there's a lot of people that are just like okay, I don't really have the patience for this. So like, give me back the borders, give me back the ge- geographical like <laughs> little. Uh, wheelhouse let me just can i just speak to the people in the u.s because i i although I yeah it's easier it, yeah right it's like i just don't have the patience right now you see a lot of that. but it's also about attitude towards growth of it, i'll be honest yeah right? me too when somebody starts to talk uh, at great length i i gotta say I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it but i'd say it anyway with a with a deep foreign accent and they just go on and on and on kind of free associating I just don't have the patience for it, and I, I've got to, you know, I stop them. I, I it's just, um, and also the the, uh, the other point I wanted to make was about audio media. Media. Somebody was asking about uh, green room. I I was on it today. I think Remy was on it. Mm. A couple of things that I was on too, and I was very very impressed with what people are going to think are the little things, but the the um, the talker ID. Hmm. You know, what what I call talker ID, mm-hmm. I've been calling it that for 50 years. Um, I'm the inventor of the telephone focus group, so I've been doing audio groups for 50 years, 10,000 uh. groups. Uh, and, and You really need the talker ID to be in your face. It's a gigantic green circle so that when somebody says, George, I can say, Chris. I see. Uh, you know, I can say, Steve, yep. Remy. You know, or uh, what What really impresses people when you're moderating is somebody goes, <clears throat> and I say, oh, uh, Chris, you're about to say something? Right, yeah. And, and, and it's sometimes they'll say, cues, how do you, how right, do you know that we're sort of I, losing in this form, yeah. or at least, you know, Twitter spaces, I think, has a long way to go, and there were some folks who work on this, yeah. but um, yeah. Yeah. The, it does it's lose a lot of the subtleties. Medium. Yeah. The, the other thing, by the way, um, that I would just point out is uh, I imagine that many folks in this room, and I certainly will just speak for myself, have an enormous amount of privilege 
like our ability Agreed. to talk at length whenever we want um, is something that not yeah. everyone in the world has the ability or access to have. One hundred percent. And so when uh, like, you come I to plug in on that real quick, like I just got yeah. like my privilege. Like I'm super privileged to have a mom that went to like Columbia Teachers College that uh-huh. like emphasized speaking well as a thing, hmm. right? So I think about that every once in a while. It's like that even me that like I'm not privileged in other ways, but there are some ways where I was very very privileged in being able to speak is one of the reasons why I'm even here on the stage speaking to you because mm-hmm. we've had like intelligible conversations on the timeline and whatnot. Right. 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 Yeah. Know, and, we, and, we, we are, I, I really agree with that. The, uh, uh, it came to a, a really sad realization today. Somebody tweeted out, uh, the guy by the name of the wise connector tweeted out a little, this little tweet. We're all doing our best. Some days the best thing you can do is survive. Hmm. It got, let me look here for a second. 8,000 likes, hmm. um, 4,000 retweets. It, think about it. All he said was, we're doing our best. Sometimes the best thing you can do is survive. That tells me that there are an awful lot of people out there who are hanging on to life by their fingernails. Yeah. And yeah. We, we lose track of that. We don't get that. We're talking to intelligent, high-functioning high individuals. I mean, the people who have been talking here are in the upper 1% of, of, of intelligence, articulateness, and on and on and on. You can name a bunch of attributes. But we are, you know, we, we forget how lucky we are. There are people who are just trying to get through life, trying to get through, forget life. They're trying to get through today. They're trying to make it to tomorrow. Well, when you talk about, you know, that that frustration that you experience or uh, like a a, a lack of interest in having those conversations or sticking around for them, right? At the same time, there is this opportunity for us to demonstrate a kind of behavior that hopefully in some ways is more inclusive. It's more solicitous. It's asking people to share what their life is like to be able to, one, offer witnessing to someone else's lived experience. And on the flip side, to be yes. able to perhaps co-modify the way that they show up so that they realize yeah. that the way in which their culture maybe taught them or showed them, or maybe it just wasn't even thought about, there is an alternative. Um, and one I think of that, the biggest that's, things, that's... Yes. One of the biggest things that I want to try and do is like a live audio version of like the Humans of New York kind ah, of thing. Interesting. Cool. Like I just, I, I just love, and I really think that social audio would be super powerful for this is like, what happens if... I just get on a stage and I just talk to Chris for an hour and a half about his story. Mm-hmm. Or I just like talk to George. Like th- I feel like just having a space one-on-one with George would be just super interesting. Right. And I actually, <laughs> like I just had a space the other day where I just opened it and I talked to this uh, guy who was from England, William. Um, and we ended up talking a whole bunch about like his story. We went down like a huge rabbit hole about poker. And I just learned so much about, like, not only the game, but, like, how he views it as, you know, this way of viewing humanity and, you know, the things that you pick up when you just actually listen to somebody else's perspective, I think is one, that's one of the most powerful things. And also one of, personally, I feel it's one of the only medicines Hmm. for this, you know, this point we're talking about, like, with patience with other people. Sure. I think that's a great idea. Anytime you want to talk to me for an hour, anytime. 
<laughs> George, if you want to do it tomorrow, I got a day off. Let's go. All right, guys. So listen, I got I to gotta wrap this up. I got to go. Uh, but on that note, I mean, I just want to remind you that this is a space cast. And so if you guys do end up recording that, there is a place where we can put it. If you decide that you want to have a posterity of you know, people listening to it afterwards. Um, but I want to thank everyone who uh, has stuck around this long. Um, Brian had to peel off, but I think he might be still recording. So that's why he's still present. But um, really appreciate you guys showing up, taking this conversation in a completely different direction, which is, <laughs> as we all know, why this format can be a really amazing. Um, yeah. And so uh, with that, we will probably be back here next Wednesday again for another episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience. For but sure. thank you all for showing up, participating. And remember, some people thank are you. just struggling to get by. And so thank you all yeah. for, for surviving. I definitely did want to say I thank you, Chris and Brian. Like I always enjoy y'all's perspective. The ability to like actually, you know, come and talk with y'all is like super great. Awesome. Thanks, Remy. Talk to you guys later. Ciao. Thank Peace. you. Ciao. Bye bye. Thanks all. Check out SpaceCast. Bye.